My name is Paul Waller, not Weller, and I am a horror movie addict. During 2020, the workload for my band and my music management job, they slowed right down. At the same time, I discovered the movie social networking platform Letterboxd. So I decided to fill in the gaps of my horror film knowledge. Within a week of choosing this path, I was averaging three movies a day. This podcast is a result of that horror compulsion. A year in horror. Welcome all you horror heads, this is A Year in Horror 2011, that is the year that we're approaching today and it was a pretty stacked year for horror movies. But before we go into it all, once again I just want to say thank you for all your social media comments and your email responses, we may just be coming out of this lockdown now. By the time you hear this, I think we should all be back on the path to going out and doing things again. But I'm recording this right towards the end of the final lockdown. And I must say, I've loved reading all the stuff that you send me. It's really filled my time in a positive way. So thank you so much for all that. And the thing that I was most asked this time around was this. How do I sort this out? How does it work in the show regarding the year that the actual film came out? Is it decided when the film is initially released into film festivals or is it when the film itself gains a worldwide release? And I can see why you're asking because it's quite important and sometimes you'll think, well, hang on, that year this film came out and he's not mentioned it. I don't include any film festival appearances. So with a film only done festivals for two years and its first festival came out in 2012, then I'm not going to mention it until the 2014 episode. It has to gain a release that everybody can potentially access. And with this year, we've got a couple of good examples, but one I will give you a for instance. So The Ward, it played Toronto Film Festival in 2010, but it didn't find a regular release until 2011. So whilst it may appear on IMDb or Letterboxd as a 2010 movie, for the purposes of a year in horror, this one is a 2011 film. Right. I hope that wasn't just too rambly. But moving on, here is a quick guide to what A Year in Horror is all about. Consider it a refresher course if you've already had a few of these under your belt. And if you're a newbie, this is how it works. This is a podcast where I choose a year at random each month and I run down my personal favourite films of that year. It's a simple concept. It never ever goes wrong and it's winning. And then it's breaking hearts all across the globe. That's how I'm doing this. Each month I am joined by a bunch of guests and they help me wade through the most interesting films of the bunch. And this month, as I mentioned, there is a massive selection for them to gnaw on. So today we have some podcast regulars. We've got photographer and filmmaker Benjamin Bowles. As for the regular musician contingent, we've got Daniel Sargent. We've got Howard Smith. We've got Paul Chanter. 
And for guests, we've got the Canadian actor Paul Braunstein. And also we have the English award-winning effects and makeup legend Dan Martin. Right, okay. So that's pretty easy. That's all in your head. You know what's going on. But there's something else you should know. My definition of horror is sometimes pretty loose for those with like that rigid, definitive idea of what makes a horror film a horror film. And sometimes these loose decisions of mine, they might make it to the very high reaches of the chart. So prepare to get proper triggered if you are a hard-lined, no-nonsense horror Nazi. This show just might not be for you. And when you make it to the very end of this episode, I'll be picking out of a bag at random the next year that I'm going to tackle for next month's edition of the podcast. Now these numbers begin at 1960 and they end at 2019. We've already hit 1971, we've hit 1984, 1996, 2001 and 2010. And here we are right now at 2011. So all those are going to be flung from the bag. Plus, I recently included three extra scraps of paper. One is marked 1920s and 30s. One is marked 1940s. And another is marked 1950s. You see how this is working? I love it. I'm getting excited just talking about this. So, on I am. 2011, it was a massive year for horror. I watched a silly amount of movies. 69 in total to compile this chart. 69. And you might be thinking, well, 69 is a very nice number. That isn't very many movies. But I think, if you're thinking that, I think you're crazy. You try watching Manborg and Helldriver as a double bill and try and stay awake. It's a mission. I chose to accept it so that you don't have to. And you might be thinking, right, that's a good explanation. I'm down with that. But stop. Wait, there are some more rules that I follow and I have to follow these so I can create the show. I have to have a cut-off line somewhere or that 69 films will be 690 films. So I use the scores on Letterboxd as a rough guide. Now a movie needs to be looking at getting a 3 out of 5 score before I'm going to watch it. And a good example here is Scott Stewart's Priest. Now that scored a close but no cigar 2.3 currently on Letterboxd. But because there isn't an angle for me to latch on to with it, uh, for instance, an actor that I love or a director that I think could deliver the goods, then I'm just simply going to let that one pass. I don't care if it's got a fan base. There's nothing that interests me to get into it. Tough. But there are some exceptions to this rule. 2011 saw the release of Tom Six Community Dividing Human Centipede 2 full sequence. And that only scored a wince-inducing 1.8 on Letterboxd. But it is the follow-up to one of the most controversial films ever made. And my guest, Dan Martin, who you will hear speaking later on, he did the effects works on it. So of course I'm going to watch it. How could I not? It would be rude. And finally, here is the most important thing. I'm just a fan. I'm an enthusiast. I am not a horror expert. Although saying that, Anybody that watches this many crappy slasher movies starts to pick up a thing or two about the whole horror process. I feel a book coming on. I feel a crappy book coming on. Give me a few more months and it might be a good book. But of course, I'm bound to miss things out. 
you need to let me know. If I've missed out one of your favourites, tell me. And if you pick up a great tip from this list, just let me know. It'll be great to hear from you. And as I said earlier, I really appreciate all you that have got in contact with me. I always reply eventually. And I'm going to repeat these contacts at the end. But just for you to know right now, feel free to contact me at the podcast at a year in horror at gmail.com with any films you think I missed or some that you think I should have a go at. Uh, you can follow me on Walla Not Weller on Letterboxd and Instagram. I am Walla Not Weller again. You can hit me up on at Not Weller Pod on Twitter as well. I'm getting used to that. Not Weller Pod, that's that. Also, if you do enjoy this, please leave me a five star review on Apple Podcasts. And the reason why anyone with a podcast will be saying that to you is simply because when you type in certain hit words, the more ratings that you get and the higher they are, the higher you are in those searches. Okay, I think that's about it. I'm almost out of breath. Let's go. You ready? I'm ready. Do it. There were probably worse movies than these that came out in 2011, but these were the worst 10 that I sat through for this episode. And this unfortunately includes four one out of 10 picks. Now, usually I will get one or maybe even two one out of 10 films at most for a year, but this year we got four. This was particularly hard work. So let's kick off at number 10 for the top 10 worst movies of 2011. It's Husk. Now, Husk has 20-somethings, I would say. They're meant to be teens, but they're 20-somethings. They're walking around cornfields and haunted, empty farmhouses. There's lots of good bits in here. I wouldn't say great, but lots of good bits. And it is very well shot. But it's simply the fact that everything on screen has been seen before. Every single idea here is copped from something else. At number nine, it's the human toilet that is director Victor Salva with his tepid, his very tepid Rosewood Lane. Now this stars Rose McGowan. Uh, but nothing makes sense. Characters, decisions, reactions, the story, uh, even the fact that actual actors signed on for this mess. It's just all bollocks. At number eight, we have for the worst film of 2011. This one, it doesn't really deserve to be there, although of course it does because I've put it there. It's a film called Snowtown, a.k.a. The Snowtown Murders. Now, if you go to the 41-minute mark in this film, around that sort of area, there is a scene where the words, shoot the dog. It happens a lot. And at that point, I was out. I had already seen paedophilia. I'd seen rape. I'd seen a kangaroo. Admittedly, it was already dead, but it was having its head hacked off. It was just too much for me. I was just simply out. As soon as that shoot the dog line happened... I'd had enough. And it is a real big shame because I was digging this build up. There's a Henry portrait of a serial killer vibe going on. It's really skilled filmmaking, to be honest. Uh, Justin Kurzel, he's the fella. Um, just stop fucking with dogs, you dickhead. I'm not having it. I love dogs. You've gone too far. In at number seven, uh, this is a horror science fiction mess. This one is called Detention. 
Um, yeah, I think this is sort of science fiction, sort of a sci-fi, sort of horror. Regardless, it tries way too hard to be cool, uh, and it fails at least 90% of the time. And I know, uh, obviously, what is cool, because I am super cool myself. At number six, Manborg. Now, I quite enjoyed uh, Psycho Gorman. That came out earlier this year. And Manborg is made by the very same team. But this one feels pretty low budget. And if you thought some of the edges of Psycho Gorman were rough, then probably best that you stay the hell away from this one. This is like if you were really into a band. And they're a pretty ropey punk band. But you like them so much that you went and got the demos. And this is like those demos. I don't know if that's an analogy I want to stick with, to be honest, but that is there now. That's Manborg. Number five, Hellraiser Revelations. Are we rolling? Yes. Can you get a shot of downtown LA before we, before we say goodbye to it forever? Bye, LA. This is going to be an epic journey. There is no better buzz than a tequila buzz. That is true. Whoa. I'm going to take her home. She's going to be my souvenir. What did you do? I don't know, okay? I don't know what happened, okay? She hit her head or something. I don't know. This will take you beyond the limits. How much do you want for it? It's yours already, Nico. Your wife's mine. What is that? I don't really get it. You guys never talk about Steven and Nico. Emma, please. What, please forget that I had a brother? Please forget that my boyfriend disappeared with him. What is on that video camera? Shut up! Ah! It's Steven! It's an earth. Oh Everyone, just stay calm. this one it is so bad apparently this was thrown together in a couple of weeks and that was in order for whatever the hell company has the rights to it currently so they can keep hold of the franchise they need to release something in that franchise to keep hold of those rights and as time was running down they knocked this one out and it took them a couple of weeks so that's the sort of background that's the sort of stuff that i already knew about this one going in but nothing prepared me for it and i'll be honest I watched this five weeks ago now. Yeah, five weeks ago now I watched this. And I can't remember a lot of it. But what I can remember is that this has the worst looking pinhead you will ever see. It looks to me like someone doing some ropey cosplay. And the producers have just pinched them right off the convention floor. It's madness. I mean, you're talking about something that might take you out of a film. Are you, are you kidding me? Hellraiser Revelations. Utterly crazy. Crushing in. Crushing in. <laughs> Number four is the inconceivably embarrassing National Theatre Live. 
Frankenstein. Now, I watched this one, and there's two choices. You can watch where Cumberbatch plays Frankenstein, or you can watch one where Cumberbatch plays Frankenstein's monster. I watched the one where he plays the monster, and that first 10 minutes, it's 100% cringe. It was really fun to watch. <laughs> it was that bad. It was awful. Uh, it's not the same as being there. I understand that. Watching something on a screen, it's a completely different vibe. I get that. I give you that. But how nobody stood up and threw their 10 quid bottle of Coca-Cola at him, I'll never comprehend it. Oddly, with a film that I disliked so much, I would recommend everybody to catch that first 10 minutes. Absolutely ludicrous. Number three in the worst of 2011 is a film called Hell Driver. Now, this one did some festivals in 2010. And much like the film Mutant Girl Squad, this is a cheap splatter and pervy old man gaze sort of film that, that wore thin really quick. To me, I just feel like I'm watching some cheap Technicolor crap. I don't like this sort of thing. And I know around this time there was loads of it coming out. So, yeah, when I get 2012 and 2009, oh, God, it's going to be full of it. I know it. At number two is a film called Twixt, just like the chocolate bar with a T on the end. So this is directed by Francis Ford Coppola. And apparently during this period, he had lost his son and the film was sort of constructed around that. So I've decided just to leave this one. I'm not going to say much about this at all. All I will say is that it's not for me. But here we are for the absolute worst movie that came out this year. We have Catherine Hardwick's Red Riding Hood. We can't do this anymore. They've arranged for you to marry Henry Lazar. What do we do now? I'd do anything to be with you. It killed again. The wolf. In daytime, the werewolf returns to its human form. The wolf is someone in this village. This was such hard work. When I was watching this, I was thinking about all that cynicism in a film like Twilight, but it just hasn't got any of that sass to actually get away with it. Uh, that was my initial thoughts. And then I looked up, who is this director? And then I found out she directed Twilight as well. It's unbelievable. And I am one of those that pretty much detests Twilight. And this was so much worse. At least with that puke-inducing Twilight film, the kids or the teenage that watch it, they can relate to the fact that it's set in an almost recognisable modern universe. But with Red Riding Hood, all you've got is Shiloh Fernandez's chest. I guess that with the added bonus that at a running time of around 100 minutes, 
You can at least get a kip in. You can at least have a little nap. But I don't know. I just don't get this one at all. It did okay at the box office. It does have a few great cast members in it. But really, all I can say about that is that those actors, you know who you are. And if you did that for the cash, then fine. But shame on you if you did it for the art because you failed really, really hard at it. I found this impossible to watch. And yet I did. All the way through until the end because I could not believe that a film could be quite this awful. But it was. It didn't get any better. So if you're a fan of that one, please let me know. I would love, I would love to know if anyone got anything from my top four. I would love to know if anybody got anything from my bottom four, I guess. It's not a top four, is it? The bottom four films. So Red Riding Hood, Twixt, Hell Driver, and that Cumberbatch film, that National Theatre Live Frankenstein thing. If you got anything from them, please let me know why. I would just love to know how that can appeal to you. Did I miss something? Especially with Twixt. Twixt, I felt like maybe I'm missing the point of this. The rest of them, no. Anyway, that's it. That's the top 10 worst movies of 2011. Congratulations, Red Riding Hood. Welcome to part one of the also-rans. There are 17 also-rans in this first half, none of which I would recommend to you at all. Most of them I just rate at 4 out of 10. But halfway through this list, podcast regular Howard Smith, he fights for one of the movies that I've placed in this bunch. It's a very interesting take on things. Let's do it. So first of all, we have to list here a few stinkers that I rate at 3 out of 10. We're going to kick off with The Right, R-I-T-E. This is an overlong and quite tedious exorcism movie. Uh, This stars Sir Anthony Hopkins. He has taken the money and he's barely even turned up to perform on the set. Okay, Uh, do you miss CSI? If so, then watch The River Murders. It may be the movie for you. So the plot is thus. When a DNA test is taken to clear Ray Liotta's name, it comes back negative, but it turns out the killer is his son. I think I just spoiled it. I think I did. But the reason being is that the DNA test would have actually brought up a family connection. They failed to think of that in this shitty movie, which is bizarre because the whole plot hinged on it. Pathetic. Next up, Faces in a Crowd. And here, a poorly written every woman, played by Mila Jovovich, she suffers from face blindness, which is something where everyone looks the same. I don't know if that's a real thing. Maybe it is. Uh, And she's stalked by a killer. It's also pretty bad. Following that, we have White, the melody of the curse. Now, I wanted to watch more of a light-hearted South Korean film, so I chose this one. And this is about a cursed J-pop-style band, Uh, But it was a real slog. It didn't earn its just under two-hour running time at all. Maybe if it was a snappy 80 minutes type film, then maybe I could recommend that to you. But as it is, don't waste your time. The next one, I had no choice to watch. And that was because it was a hammer horror. 
It's called The Resident, and I think it is a Western take on a film I watched also for this year called Sleep Tight, which I will talk about later on this episode. Um, regardless, don't bother watching this one. This one finds Hilary Swank in a lush new apartment where the maintenance guy, the landlord guy, he's a proper creepy dude. Now to a film that, according to Netflix, had just under a quarter of their subscribers watch it within the first few months of COVID-19 hitting. The film is, of course, Contagion. It was a groundbreaking ceremony for a new factory. Did she mention seeing anyone who was sick? Anyone on a plane at the airport? No, she said she was jet-lagged. The average person touches their face three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, and each other. Beth! Mom? No, no, uh, uh, go up to your room, honey. So we have a virus with no treatment protocol and no vaccine at this time. You had a seizure this morning, Beth. She had a history of seizures? No, no, no. Allergies? As of last night, there were 32 cases. Unfortunately, she did die. Right. And he says, well, can I go talk to her? Mr. Amos, your wife is dead. What are you talking about? What happened to her? What happened to her? Is there any way someone could weaponize the bird flu? Is that what we're looking at? Someone doesn't have to weaponize the bird flu. The birds are doing that. Watch this. It's transmission, so we just need to know which direction. On day one, there were two people, and then four, and then 16. In three months, it's a billion. That's where we're headed. They're calling out the National Guard. They're moving the president underground. People will panic. Get away! It will tip over. The truth is being kept from the world. Cook your samples, destroy everything. So what is so bad about this film? I hear you ask me. Well, my answer is thus. For me, the reason why it's so low is it is a mix between that the film is so smug and it's got a real lack of heart. But maybe, and this is probably the big reason as to why, maybe this is the very worst performance that I've ever seen Matt Damon give. Never seen him worse on a piece of celluloid. It really is a stinker. And that's those three out of tens out of the way. We are now dipping into the four out of tens. We're going to begin with Savage Crossing. That was an incredibly low budget and shot digitally exploitation movie. It does have its feet in a few different horror genres, but it really never picks a side to swim in. It is a bit of a mess. I think of it as a one-man siege set in the outback against the backdrop of a massive storm, but that makes it sound a bit better than it actually is. And then we head back over to South Korea. And I opted this time for a horror comedy. A sort of zomcom that isn't a zomcom because it's a ghost com. I think though this one was squarely aimed at the teen market. And again, it's so overlong at just under two hours. Again, I can't recommend it. A French movie follows this. That is next in my list. It is called Livid. And I love the idea of this one. Kids breaking into a house to rob it. Allah, don't breathe is the one I'm thinking of right now. But this positions the kids in a different scenario. They are robbing the home of a vampire. 
It's a bit of a silly idea, and maybe it would have worked if some more time was spent on developing the human characters here, but this one does find itself very low down in my list. As does the next one, and this next one is an anthology. It's called Chillerama. And of course, the good thing about anthologies is that there is sometimes a real gem hidden amongst it. And I think there is a, almost a gem here. So this has got a pretty cool moment. The giant sperm segment is, of course, pretty wonderful. And the camp Nazi doctor, that segment would have worked out a lot better if only every now and again the odd word choices weren't used in the script that are. Uh, to be honest, it's pretty cringy in today's climate, and that's why it didn't work for me. But the sperm bit, yeah, I like a bit of sperm. The Ward is up next, and I do remember this being in the local cinema for me. It did debut at the Toronto Film Festival in 2010, but the general release was in 2011, and it was pushed pretty hard. It just failed to connect with a horror audience, uh, which is weird because this is a John Carpenter film that also stars Amber Heard. So let's just say this wasn't Carpenter's best period of filmmaking. I think I feel comfortable just saying that much. Next, speaking of Amber Heard, she joined Nicolas Cage in this mad movie called Drive Angry. And I'm going to take the podcast right now in a slightly different direction at this point. Instead of just asking potential guests to choose from my top 10 list, this time around I put the whole list up for people to choose from. And if they choose something that's not on that list, I'll watch that anyway so we can chat about it together. And would you believe it, podcast regular and singer with Acid Rain, Howard Smith, he has chosen my number 33 pick from 2011 to talk about. So here is our conversation. What is the deal with Drive angry tell him i'm coming you're too late hell's gonna walk the earth hell already is walking the earth he broke out of hell to make things right he was a good father and god makes up with the wrong crowd now He's got one last shot at redemption. That cult killed my daughter and took her baby. I am going to get her back. Thought you were dead. <laughs> you hoped I was dead. Have you seen Drive Angry? Or are you relying on me here? No, no, of course I have. Total needless hand gesture to the face means that was a lie. I've done... No. I've done my fucking, I've done my um, body language call. <laughs> well, you're wrong. I've seen it twice now. and <laughs> the, I had to watch it a second time because I couldn't bloody remember it. When you said, oh, yeah, I do drive angry. I was like, right, what the bloody hell was that? I, I, do you know what? I, actually, should we just get stuck in? Because this is it really, isn't it? I, do, you know, I, do you know what? When I saw it on the list, I was like, well, I don't remember that being particularly horrific. But this is Paul's definition of horror so you know it's uh you know avatar might be in here one week um so yeah i, I just thought yeah i'll have that I, I haven't because i thought i haven't watched it for in a while but i i remember it being it's oh it's one of the good nick cage ones you know and they and they are mm -hmm. out there if you look for them they are out there i, I mean I, re, I think i said to you that um 
I bought it on 3D Blu-ray, so I must, you know, so I must have really liked it. And then I dug the, bo the box out to stick in front of the telly to remind me to watch it. And, um, and I looked and it was like, oh, actually, it's just one disc. And the mo you could only buy it like this. Basically, it's a one disc and it's, it, it's the movie is in, in 3D and in 2D all on the same disc. They've crammed everything onto the right. one disc. So, so the truth is, no, I didn't splash out a load of money on a, a special edition. But you still get to see it in 3D. Uh, yes, and uh, and um, and given that you've seen it in two D, you'll be well aware of some of the horrendous because it must look horrendous in two D. Some of some of the uh... I've seen it twice there, Howard. Twice. Right. Well, there you go. Seeing it, seeing some of those <laughs> shots, you must have been sat there going, "Yeah, well, that's for three D. Yeah, that's for three D. That's for." 3D. Only after you mentioned it, and I watched it the second time. Ah, right. Okay. I... Good. Good. So yeah. And then I saw the poster, of course, and it says in big writing in 3D. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've got to be honest. There's, um, you know, there, there's there's movies that I've watched in 2D and 3D, and then I've watched it in 2D and just thought, yeah, them filming it for three this for 3D has spoiled it. But sometimes, and I'd say um, Dread is an example of this. You watch it in 2D and it's great. Then you watch it in 3D and you go and it's and it's improved. Because shots that you liked in 2D turns out look even better in 3D. But it, but for some reason, and I can't explain why, some movies, it just doesn't work. And, you, you know, it, it, you either get annoyed watching the 2D or you, or you get annoyed watching the 3D. Um, or, well, yeah, I do anyway, but I get annoyed at, you know, the sound of sunlight. We're going to kick off. This is Drive Angry. Yay! Straight off the bat. Can I just say, I think there's a whole load of people listening to this will be like, oh, awesome. Drive Angry is getting reviewed. <laughs> and not only just a quick review, but they're going to talk about it for a number of minutes because it's such a brilliant and important movie in the horror landscape, said no one. <laughs> Look, I think it's really important to, to cover these ones because there's not much chatter out, out there completely about them. And sometimes you're going to miss a real hidden gem. Yeah. And there are parts of this that on that rewatch, I was just like, yeah. bloody hell. You know, <laughs> like, wow. So it does happen. Oh, this, um, and, and I mean, look, you know, let's go, let's bury straight into MVP by a mile because he steals every scene he's in. William uh, Fitner or Fitchner, however you want to pronounce his name. I mean, he just, he, he's having so much fun doing what he's doing and I'm having so much fun because every time he comes on screen and he does what he does I find myself smiling and I'm smiling because it's clear that this guy is a really great at what he does and b is loving loving getting his teeth into this role because he's just he just doesn't obey well he's not from this world he's not of this world so he doesn't obey any of society's rules or anything He's a cool cucumber, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, well, haven't you ever wanted to walk up to like some ignorant, um, horrendous person and say, "Hey, fat fuck"? Hey, that happens to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but when it when it, and um, and later on in the movie, he walks into a church because he's constantly on Nicolas Cage's tail. It's almost like a. It, there's elements of it that reminded me, funnily enough, of T two. 
you know, where where the the, um, yeah. the Terminator is is constantly you, you you're constantly seeing the the Terminator um, sifting through the debris of what's been left by Arnie and the gang trying to find him, and that's basically the same narrative here for most of the movie is that you've got this relentless creature from another time slash planet slash um dimension who is constantly on the tail and on and following this trail of wreckage that that nick cage is leaving behind i hate to invoke t2 because obviously you know this movie is is no t2 folks but you knew that anyway what yeah, he's just he's just he's just doing that role so well, and I I'm just oh, love it. He sort of tries to out Nicholas Cage, Nicholas Cage in a in a sort of different different way, a different style, his own unique way. Yes, and yeah, having them both playing off each other is great. Well, his thing his thing is quiet. He doesn't raise he doesn't doesn't raise his voice in the whole movie. It's Nicholas, and to be fair, Nicholas Cage doesn't barely raises his voice as well. Um, but he's just his clipped speech. And his 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 like mm, his affectations, and it, it, which they're almost camp, but they're not because you know at heart he's he's evil. There's just something about the performance, like you say, it's almost. I kind of get the feeling that the way the director did this was we'll do one sh- we'll do one take for the script, and then we'll do one take for you, one take for the script, one take for you. And after a while, the director just went, I tell you what, we'll just do takes for you because they're always better than the script because he's just given that extra freedom when he walks into the church after Nicolas Cage has left a number of um, uh, parishioners um, who deserved it by the way um, they're all like you know shot up and dead but one bloke's still alive but he's got like he's got gunshots to both legs and it's really like gory and they're just hanging and William Fitchner walks in just looks at his legs and goes those are fucked (laughs) and it's just like it's just it, it, the way it's delivered, the way he does it. Do you know what I mean? It's literally like somebody in coming in, just going like, "Bloody hell, those are fucked." You're right there, mate. You know, it's like his legs have been virtually blown off. It's great. He's seen it all before. What I'm going to ask you, because there's going to be a lot of people that don't know what we're talking about, um, give us the best synopsis. Are you, you sure can. everyone hasn't seen this? Are you sure? But there's, it did okay. It broke <laughs> even, didn't it? But yeah, let's let's just give them a synopsis. Right. Okay. Uh, am I doing this? Yes, you fucking are. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I've got the DVD box in front of me. Get ready for one hell of a ride. Milton Nicholas Cage is a hardened all. No, it's <laughs> basically <laughs> Nick Cage. You went all Daniel on me there. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I've done my research. Here we go. Um, uh, basically, Nick Cage breaks out of hell to go and save his daughter from the clutches of a um, mad Jesus freak who is going to, um, well, basically, Nicolas Cage in hell has seen his daughter, his daughter's daughter, his granddaughter, who's been torn from his daughter's arms. His daughter was then murdered. And this religious nut job has taken her baby off for sacrifice um, to bring on Armageddon. And the accountant, played by the aforementioned William Fitchner, or Fitner, depending on your pronunciation, um, he is the accountant. He is following on from hell, and on he's on the tail of 
Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage very quickly meets up with a, um, a, a, a very attractive waitress played by Amber Heard um, before she was more famous for um, going to court um, with uh, Johnny Depp. It's what everyone wants to be known for. Yeah, absolutely. I think this might be a first movie. I'm not sure. It's 10 years ago. Um, but I'd certainly never heard of her before at the time. Uh, so th- and they're and they're basically they're basically your three main well your three main actors, um, but you've also got I think it's Randy Burke I'm not sure who plays um, uh, who, who who plays the the you know the for want of a better phrase Jesus freak no offense to anybody who is religious that's your problem um but um yeah I, i'm I, it, that's that's the story and they're just on the tail he meets up with amber heard he likes her car um it breaks down he fixes it he jumps in the car with her and you know they they he's determined to get his granddaughter back um and it turns out in the end that he does and that he'd handpicked amber heard whose character uh, i can't remember the name of um, and um, and it's all it's all great in the end, but they leave a trail of death and destruction um, along the way. I watched it in three D. You watched it in two D. In three D, some of the hilarious stunts, which are supposed to be funny, for instance, a a truck driving into the side of a car and then flipping over the car and doing like and this is a truck doing somersaults in yes. the air, landing and exploding, right. <laughs> Purely because it drove into another car at not a particularly high speed. It is deliberately, deliberately over the top. I mean, it starts with the motherfucking speech of motherfucking all motherfucking time. Since the birth of time, humanity has endeavored to restrain evil men in prisons. But since Cain fled the murder of his brother, evil men have fled the walls of punishment. So it doesn't matter if you're a badass motherfucker on the run because you think you're better than everyone else and somehow entitled to do what you gotta do. No, because you see badass motherfuckers are never fast enough. In the end, they will all be accounted for. I mean, that's the way to start a movie. And that really, really does tonally, um, story-wise, it sets the scene, but it also tonally sets the tone. And it's kind of perfect. Poorly done, cheap CGI opening scenes of cars driving out of hell. Forget what you're watching, the voiceover. It's all about the voiceover. And from there on out, it's... um, it's a wild ride, kids, and it's one of um, it's one of Nick, Nick Cage's best. But funnily enough, I couldn't help but notice Drive Angry. Nicholas Cage is the only actor to have their name featured on the front cover at all. And I'm thinking, well, Amber Heard wasn't there very well known back then, and William Fitchner, he's well, he's made good strides in the last ten years. But hang on. I think actually, or was it that they said, can it just be Nick's name on the front? Yeah, could, it could well be. Yeah, can, can we be stashed down the bottom? I mean, the guy who plays the main Jesus nut, he's not even listed on the, you know, on 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 the featured actors, and yet he's one of the feature roles, and he's and he's really good in it as well. Uh, one, of the, I'm going to pick up on one of those things you said. Um, 
with regards to the 3D, there is, as you say, a pretty ropey CGI here and there, but the whole world is like hyper real. It's it's of Earth, but it's not Earth as we really know it. Everything just seems times ten. And like even when um you introduced Amber Heard and her boyfriend at the time and they're having that row, that all just seems like Okay, I've seen people have rows before, but this is mad. It, it, it's it's I think it's all over the top, basically. It's 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 you know it's if it was a stage play, it'd be a farce. You know, it's being played, it's being played loud and in your face. I mean, come on, you know they cast Nicolas Cage in the main role, and I personally think that it, it's a, it, the joke's on you, Nick, because you've got to come to work and be quiet and sullen every day and everyone else is doing the nick cage thing all around you <laughs> you know everyone else is going like is is mm-hmm. is you know he's all blown up and doing the whole thing that you're famous for but he's playing it he's just playing it really cool and calm and sullen you know um but yeah it's it it's deliberately deliberately over the top isn't it, it? just reminds me a lot of supernatural and i know you're, you're uh-huh. a bit of a fan of supernatural it does, there's elements of that in that same hyper-real sort of universe. So we can relate to everything that there is because it is of Earth, but at the same time, everything is just so bombastic. And I guess that's why being in 3D, especially as it was made specifically with 3D in mind, like it must really help it. And again, there's me, Walla, sitting on my little chair, watching it in 2D, going, oh, what? <laughs> yeah, oh, bless him. Uh, well, well, look, for, firstly, um, to any fans of, to any fellow um, fans of Supernatural out there, it's nothing like Supernatural, don't worry. Um, um, I No, I can see where you're coming from with that. Um, but, I, I mean, I'm, you know, I've seen every single episode of Supernatural. And, um, uh, yeah, a bit of a fanboy. Um, and I, I can, I kind of get it, but I sort of kind of don't as well. Um, this is reminds me, uh, like I said, T two ish, purely because of the device of Fit- Fitchner being like some sort of, um, you know, um, from hell Terminator, um, just sifting through the wreckage that Cage leaves behind. And the way, you know, he just navigates it and just gets people involved and then just, you know, throws them away again. Um, he's he's just he's he's just so cool. But also it reminds me kind of I don't know why, but it, it reminds me a little bit of Dust Till Dawn. Just a, a, a kind of over the top kind of I don't know. I, I mean, I love, love Dust Till Dawn and, and great little segment on the um uh, on the podcast as well I'm, i really enjoyed listening to that i'm still gutted that i didn't get i, I didn't get to review it but do you know what i mean but, you know people will be sick of my you voice. were all over you were all over scream come on to be fair i was all over scream i i just i just really love this movie i i, I it's kind of there's just something about it and also you can't be finding a good Nick Cage movie. They're out there, but you know, they ain't they they you know they're like truffles and, and when you find when you know when you find one that's good, or sometimes not shit will do, you know? But if you can find one that's good, you re- you really do. You finish, you you finish watching it and you get a little warm feeling like, yeah, you know. You see, I I'm, yeah. And I, I 
I'm finding things out the more I listen to your podcast the more I'm finding out about myself and my own viewing habits and my, my own little world and, and the things I like and the things that I don't like in, you know, in horror. And I'm finding out about my own little eccentricities and my own little rules and things like that. And I've also found out something else. I found out that I think I'm a bit of a Nick Cage fan. And um, that's... Glad to hear it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, I loved him back in the day. I loved him on Wogan. You know, when he came in and did his somersault, clearly having just done a bag of coke, guy's done a bunch of coke. It's always worth a rewatch to just look at Wogan's face. Oh, I mean, it's great. The thing is, Wogan, Wogan treats him like, literally, like he's at a wedding and an over-enthusiastic child <laughs> has sat next down to it, sat next to him at, at the table. And he's just sort of, and he's just sort of nice to him, knowing that this isn't going to last very long. Do you know what I mean? Until someone <laughs> comes and gets him. It's, yeah, yeah. For Nick Cage fans out there, like myself, it's um, it's it's a find. But I and I love the humour in it. And like I said, Fitchner's performance and character is, you know, boy MVP times two. Absolutely brilliant in it. But um, but Nick Cage is you know he, he, he is good at what he does, but he it's weird because they, it's almost like they're opposite roles because Cage is plays like a Terminator, including the eye goes missing, and he and he ends up with like and and at that point I was really like this is really reminding me of Terminator, you know he's just because he's monosyllabic he's you, he can't be killed. Um, and he's on a particular mission, and it and it and it involves, you know, a person, a child, and and saving them, uh, and so there's there's maybe more, you know, T two ness about this than I was first aware of. I read an article that Wikipedia had me in. Um, you know, you click one of those links, and it leads you to an interview. And he said that the reason why he chose this role was because of that eye, a prosthetic and losing the eye. He wanted that in a movie and this movie had it. So he took it. Uh, so, yeah. How weird. What what That's, a weird life this man must lead. That That is so Nick Cage. You know, I'm looking down. I'm looking down my biography. So many boxes are ticked. But movie where I've only got one eye, that box is still not ticked. Oh, Look at this script. <laughs> oh, I'll do it. Yeah, I lose an eye in one scene. I'll do the whole movie. Brilliant. What a great way. What a great way to make decisions in your life. Do you know what I mean? Oh, that's great. I personally think this was one... I think this was one for Nick as opposed to one for the tax man. I think yeah. this was one for himself. Um, the ultimate of those movies... It's a bad lieutenant. Um... He was in the remake. Oh, hello. Have you um, have you seen it? I've only seen the original. Right, me too. I'd only seen the original, but um, I'd heard good things about this. Werner Herzog directed Nicolas Cage in Bad Lieutenant. And it's like, well, this I've got to see, because this is either going to be great or a steaming pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eva Mendes is in it as well. And do you know what? Nick... Nicholas, I can see why Werner Herzog went for him. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm well aware of straight off into another movie. Um, but well, I, that's cool. But I would say, again, Bad Lieutenant, the remake with Nicholas Cage, Eva Mendes. I thought, well, I'll give it a whirl. And I just saw why Werner Herzog had um, 
Nicholas Nicholas Cage play this role because he just basically said to him, "Look, I want you to basically be you in the early nineties on coke for the whole movie, right? Just you, just play you, just be Nicholas Cage on coke from the early nineties through the whole movie, right? Job done. That's all I'm looking for." And and you know Nick's gone. That I can do. <laughs> and and he's lit, and, and he's literally. But it works. It fucking works. I was not. I was not a fan of the original. Um. So that'll be interesting to see whether I like this remake. No. no as good a, as good an actor as Harvey Keitel is, I don't ever want to see his ass. <laughs> and, and and that movie, yeah, it should be badass, basically. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's quite disturbing that particular movie. Mm. Um, I remember it. Was it around the time of Henry? Did Henry come out around that time? Because then there was there was Henry, and then Similar. there was man, and then there was Man Bites Dog, and there, there was like we got a clutch of really like intense, like nasty movies around a similar time. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of Bad Lieutenant, but uh, the Nick Cage version, great. But anyway. There's a bit in Mandy. Now, I don't know if you've seen Mandy. you seen uh, Mandy? Well, you know, me not being a horror movie fan, mate. Of course I have. <laughs> what the fuck is... What, why did I think I was not a horror movie? What was wrong with me? <laughs> what was wrong with me? It's incidents like this that prove it. It's like, no, I'm not really a horror fan. All right. Have you seen Colour Out Space? Yeah, yeah. Have you seen Mandy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen Drive Angry? Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, sorry. Go on. Well, the the vodka scene from vodka onwards, when he goes full Nick Cage, as the expression is, that's how I envision Nick Cage. But what's really interesting to me in that film is before that moment, when he's actually stretching his acting chops, when you know that there's way more to him than just this caricature that like people think of, oh, that's Nicolas Caged. No, not at all. Like there's so much to him. And like I think that's a perfect film for him because it's, admittedly, it's not the hugest range, but there's still a vast range there that he's just not known for that shit. And it's really good, really solid. But again, as with all good, really good, really solid, really varied and wide and nuanced Nicolas Cage performances, there's so much running around covered in blood with chainsaws either side of it. That it kind of gets it kind of gets lost in the noise, you know. I mean, color color of color out of space. Um, actually, let me go on a total tangent to explain what I mean. Are you aware of a movie called Cold Pursuit? No. Stars Liam Neeson um, as a uh, as a bloke who drives a snowplow, keeps a road clear. Right now, it's a remake of a Norwegian film. Now, this guy ends up killing a load of people, not for fun or anything like that. It's all perfectly justified and everything else. And it's a fu- it's a brilliant movie. You know, Liam Neeson is great in it. It's wonderful. There's loads of laughs. It's cold pursuit, mate. Honestly, watch it. You and the wife, you'll have a lovely time. You'll message me and you'll thank me. <laughs> um, but the Norwegian original is still a better movie purely because it's not Liam Neeson in the, re- in the lead role. Because when Liam Neeson suddenly become goes from being mild-mannered um, uh, snowplow driver. Well, he, he's always mild-mannered, but he just becomes this killer who won't take anymore and he's fighting back against crooks. Sure. And it's like, well, of course he is. It's Liam Neeson. That's always in the back of your mind. 
So when it comes to Colour Out of Space, Nicolas Cage is doing an, a great job. He's slowly going mad. He's dialing up the cage, notch by notch. But the trouble is, it's Nicolas Cage and it's Nicolas Cage's gauge. See what I did there? And the thing is that his gauge is louder than everybody else's. So when he's starting to go a little bit mad, he's already doing what most actors would consider their flat out insanity level. <laughs> but Nick's got a couple of more notches on that gauge. And and so you you know, kind of end up feeling like, oh, I don't know, he's like, is he really overacting here or... Then you go, well, hang on, look at what's going on on screen. Like, everything is of other, is so otherworldly. Of, of course he's got to be giving it 11. This is an 11 situation, and he's reacting on 11. This is okay, you know? Heading back to Drive Angry, where would you say this is within his plethora of, like, back catalogue? He has been in so many films. I cried in the cinema for the very first time watching him in City of Angels when he played uh, an angel called Seth Plate in the late 90s against Meg Ryan. So he's in all sorts of films. Is that was that was was that was that amongst your cinema years of trying to um get in touch with your female side? Or was it a date? <laughs> it definitely was. No, it was just with a bunch of mates. What? All loving Nicolas Cage. Uh, we're oh. watching him as an angel. And yeah, there's okay. me leaving the cinema in tears. Wow, that is a man crush and a half. That is, isn't it? Well, um, well. First off, Nicholas's oeuvre, as you say, is large and wide, not that varied. Although sometimes you think, oh, really? I, I honestly think I have not. Obviously, I haven't seen every film he's ever done, and I don't have Nick Cage posters on my wall, and I don't have a. Nicolas Cage top 10 because to be honest as I've already mentioned I only found out I was a Nicolas Cage fan until you said <laughs> until you, and I went oh Drive Angry great yeah oh, it's a good Nick Cage film that and then I went to get it out of my collection and went oh there's another Nick Cage film oh there's another oops that'll happen <laughs> yep you're a fan um, but it's, it's it's up there it's got a, I, for me personally I'd say top 5 without a doubt and bearing in mind he's made that many movies I would I would put it in the top 5 because and here's why, folks, because it's got everything in it that I love, right? It's got a shitload of great motherfucking swearing as motherfucking often as motherfucking possible. Um, secondly, in one of the scenes when something really unlikely happens, which manages to keep the movie going because the, the movies hit a roadblock, literally, and something happens and one of the characters just looks and goes well that was unexpected and it was literally like you could have said that to the camera dude you literally you know the audience's voice is there and you just think that is a director going yeah yeah fuck it yeah do it do it yeah we're going to do this absolutely outrageous stunt to keep this movie going and everyone's going to go really Really? So why don't we be the first to do that? Um, I love that. Nip it in the bud. Yeah, yeah. There's a shitload of action, totally over the top. Um, need gro needless gross violence. Um, uh, Fitchner is absolutely on form, suave as fuck, and menacing with it. Cage is just ruthless, can't be killed, and he's pissed off and righteous. 
He's trying to protect a young baby from having its throat slit and being, you know, and, and being murdered by a religious nut job. I mean, if that is not righteous, then I don't know what is. Um, you've got and you've you've got Christianity getting a good old kicking as well. Just throw that in there. That's, that's always welcome. Um, it's a strong organisation. It can take a little bit of piss taking in a Nick Cage movie, for God's sake. Um, there's uh, um, there's some strong females in it. I mean, mainly, you know, they're strong because they speak more with their fists than they do with their mouths. Um, I, I, yeah, I just, yeah, and there's it also, there's like, you know, it's kind of a sort of back from the dead revenge flick, but not quite. Um, and there's a really, really interesting take on hell, which is that in hell, all you see is a constant video feed of your loved ones that you've left behind. And that video feed is all the shit stuff that happens to them and all the bad things they go through. And you just watch that on a loop. And that's how he knew what was going on and who he needs to. Be. And he was so angry, drive angry, that he broke out of hell. And I mean, I, I just love that. I mean, I, you know, I'm 52 years old, but the 15 year old in me is going, fucking get in there. When does it start? It better start with someone saying motherfucker. Oh, it has. I mean, <laughs> bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Howard, thank you very much for coming on again. Cheers. Absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you for that, Mr. Howard Smith. Moving on next into my list, we have another Australian horror. This one is called The Tunnel, and this is not terribly well executed. It's a found footage movie that's set in the underground tunnels. If the idea of that excites you, look elsewhere. I would recommend you go to As Above, So Below. Head there instead, because this, this is a huge letdown after you've seen that. Following swiftly on, after the success of The Others in 2010, a few movies were released of a similar ilk, trying to maybe catch the audience off guard and bombarding them with these period pieces. Well, this one is called The Awakening, and it's alright. It's just not The Others, but it has the same vibe, and it's got a great performance in it by Sean Dooley. He is the physical education teacher in here. And if you're going to watch The Awakening, I would advise you just keep your eye on him. Keep your eye on Sean Dooley. But it's not just John Carpenter that's in my also-rans this time around. Next up, we have Stephen King. He wrote this one. It's called Bag of Bones. Uh, it's up next. And anybody that's seen it knows that this one is just okay. Much like the book... This is also just a classic mid-level sort of also ran of Kings. For me, when I read this book, I mean, there was just way too much book and not enough story. And the film does try its best. And I didn't watch this when it was aired, and I think it might have been a TV two-parter because it's really long. But honestly, I don't think a Stephen King adaptation should ever appear this low on a chart. And even now I'm thinking, to have it here, I'm just being a bit generous. 
Following this, we have the remake of Straw Dogs. Now, this was not as bad as I was expecting. I mean, it wasn't great. And I don't know why I do this to myself. It's nowhere near as convincing as the original. Uh, as Dustin Hoffman, he was just so perfectly cast in that one. And they've got Skazgard in this, and he's not as convincing at all. He's far too beautiful for just this hick, rednecky type fella. It just doesn't work. It's not believable. And finally, we've come to it. The end of the first part of the also-rans. We got Quarantine 2 Terminal. What's going on? I don't know. Some apartment building in LA. Good, we're flying away. Sir? 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 You're going to have to stay still, okay? The tower's not clearing us for a gate. Why won't tell us? Get out of here! Wow. That door will take you to tarmac level. This has never been locked before. Lockdown. What? Attention, flight 3 You are now under quarantine. Do not attempt to leave. <laughs> we need your help. Our orders are to keep you alive and contained. Get out of here now. He's infected! Now, this was the best of this bad batch. There are positives. Uh, it, it's the sequel to the American remake of Wreck, and it takes it into a completely new landscape, which I sort of liked. Uh, it's got the inside of an aeroplane and the inside of an airport hangar, the area of the airport that sorts out the bags. But this one sort of looks like a storage warehouse as well. It's half decent zombie fun. It could be a lot worse, and you could do a lot worse by watching it. I mean, not much, but it is possible. And now I think, after all this chitter-chatter, I think that it is time we finally hit the top 10 of 2011. I'm just going to go for this one. Matthias Van Heinian. That's probably what it is. But I'm very sorry if that is not how you pronounce this director's name. Um, and that probably does not help you know what the hell it is I'm about to talk about. It's a real bummer that I am such an ignorant piece of crap. I did look it up, I try and figured it out, I listened to a couple of people talk to him and it just wasn't mentioned because everyone is too scared. I wish I was a better person. But less about that. Let's talk about horror remakes, reboots, reimaginings in and around the horror period of 2004 to 2015. Now, in general, and generally speaking, the majority of these are, in the whole, shit. But with the success of the 2001-13 Ghosts and 2002's The Ring, the remake craze just went ballistic. And I'm just going to read a ton of these off. Some are fantastic and some are not. 
and also so you know there are plenty more these are just the ones that I thought of on the top of my head and then I've just added the years where they actually come out and this is going to give you a really good overview of what was going on at the time so in 2004 we had the grudge in 2005 house of wax the amityville horror dark water and the fog in 2006 the hills have eyes the omen the wicker man when a stranger calls in 2007 the hitcher 2008 prom night quarantine 2009 friday the 13th the last house on the left sorority row my bloody valentine and the stepfather in 2010 just catching my breath let me in the crazies piranha a nightmare on elm street don't be afraid of the dark the wolfman i spit on your grave in 2011 fright night 2012 maniac 2013 evil dead Carrie, and then 2015 although i don't really count this in that same craze it's poltergeist I mean, these were the best of times and these were the worst of times. So much horror was out there, but so much of it was just this remake, retreading of old crap. And you could see straight through it. It was just to make a huge buck. But some were stunning. They were fun. They were worth it. And some, some were absolutely fucking terrible. While some respected the foundations on that template from which they were built, some just simply shat all over it. So when my number 10 movie was announced, as not a remake, but as a prequel, I have to admit I was really excited. The original film, which in itself was adapted from another movie way back when, uh, it began with a dog running into a camp in a snow-capped Antarctica. But this film would end with that moment. The rest of it was just up for grabs. And I was totally on board. I couldn't wait to get my fat butt on that cinema seat. Oh yes. I am talking about the prequel of The Thing. That's what this one's called. It's called The Thing. 48 hours ago, we found something quite remarkable. What'd they find? There's a structure. In Antarctica? And a specimen. Really? Touching down. This is Kate Lloyd's Columbia Paleontology. Let me show you why you flew 10,000 miles. We estimate it's been here 100,000 years. I'm going to take a tissue sample. Do you really think that's a good idea? Yes, I do. You, my friends, will all be immortalized as the people who made this discovery. And of course, here is the long-winded, letterboxed synopsis. It's not human yet. When paleontologist Kate Lloyd travels to an isolated outpost in Antarctica for the expedition of a lifetime, she joins an international team that unearths a remarkable discovery. Their elation quickly turns to fear as they realise that the experiment has freed a mysterious being from its frozen prison. Paranoia spreads like an epidemic as a creature that can mimic anything that it touches will pit human against human as it tries to survive and flourish in this spine-tingling thriller. First thing, in this spine-tingling thriller... 
Can I just say, fuck you to whoever writes that bullshit. If there was a film that's horror and not a thriller, then this is it. Sci-fi horror, body horror maybe, but thriller, it's not. I truly hope that films like Hereditary and the get-outs of this world have made PR teams grow some balls and actually call larger-budget horror movies what they actually are. And of course, this is nothing new. I know that, but I've not mentioned it before here on this podcast, and it really pisses me off. Anyway, we're off subject here. This is the thing. And it's a first for a year in horror. I wanted to have an insider's view of this one. I wanted to know as much of the process of making this movie as I did what they thought of the movie. It's one that I've seen a stack of times and I very much enjoy it to this day. So what did I do? I reached out to Canadian actor Paul Braunstein who plays Griggs in this movie for a lowdown of how it came together and I was really chuffed to spend just that little bit of time with him in this following conversation. So I'm going to be back in about 20 minutes or so, but first up, have a listen to this, the rather the smashing Paul Braunstein and myself having it out over Zoom. Oh. Are horror movies actually your thing? Do you, did you dig them before going into these? I guess, I mean, I... I... I, I wouldn't say I was I was full on horror movie nerd, but I definitely uh, have a few that I really liked. And I guess like like any other film genre, there's ones that I thought were cool and other ones that I was, you know, didn't really care for. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely, definitely had had an appreciation for some of the good ones. Um, yeah. What's uh, one of your earliest memories of actually thinking? Well, I think I think I actually saw the first Poltergeist in a movie theater with my parents and i'm thinking like how do i i remember being quite young so i don't know maybe it was maybe it was only adult accompaniment maybe it wasn't fully restricted i can't remember anyway i saw it in the theater and i remember being pretty pretty rocked by that one there was a couple of scenes in that one that just really kind of haunted me for a while the one where he's i think it's one of the fbi agents or one of the guys who are helping stake out the house oh no it was the dad maybe it was the dad he's in the bathroom and he starts washing his face Yes. And and he kind of goes, what the fuck? He's got a little flake of, sorry, I shouldn't swear. He's got a little flake of skin and he kind of starts picking at it. Next thing you know, he's tearing flesh off his face down to like, it was like so shocking and horrific. And I was probably too young. I also remember somebody when we were kids got a some bootleg copy of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and we watched oh, wow. it on v, VHS or Betamax or something crazy like that at somebody's house way too young way too young and just being like absolutely horrified anyway so yeah i had i had, I had some I had some early experiences that's a way to dip into it oh People ripping their faces off yeah and, then, and you've got like texas chainsaw is filmed in such a way where as a kid i didn't know what was real and what wasn't especially with those it's, opening shots it's gritty exactly like seeing people hanging on hooks and stuff was kind of so i think i think that kind of stuff that kind of that style of horror that kind of um really super gory stuff might not be my thing so much as uh stuff that goes into the supernatural the psychological uh stuff that deals with the unknown more so than just a crazed killer i mean we can we can open the news and 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 read about that kind of stuff anytime but when it kind of delves into things that are a bit more out of the human realm i think i think that gets kind of more interesting for me well going on a few years being an actor 
I love to know this story, how you got the call up for the thing. Now, were you initially a fan? Were you aware of the John Carpenter version and also maybe even back to the 1951 version? Were you already aware of these films going in? I, I wasn't aware so much of the 1950s version, although I became aware of that after the fact when I when I when I booked it. But um, it's funny, my my wife now at the time, we had just kind of gotten together fairly recently. And one of her favorite movies of all time was was the John Carpenter one. And this is before I booked it. And so that kind of came up, came up for us. And we, we watched it together because she's like, oh, you're going to love this movie. She was really into that movie. And I was like, yeah, this is incredible. What a classic. And then it was probably only a few weeks later that that this came up. It was sort of like this weird, like she kind of, she, she, she summoned it. She summoned this job for me somehow. And uh, so I, yeah, because of that, because of her, I kind of, I was, I was definitely aware of it. So when this job came up, I think I realized then that it was, this was kind of a big deal. And how exactly did you land this role? Well, it's funny, the, uh, you know, any time of, of either a foreign film or an American film comes to Canada, they'll, they'll generally use obviously Canadian crew and quite often fill out their cast with with Canadian actors. Maybe they'll have, you know, two leads are from Hollywood and the rest of the cast will be Canadians. Um, in this case, it was Norwegians, Canadians, Danish um, and some Hollywood types, you know, by way of, you know, Adewale, I think, was born in Africa, raised in England, but lives now lives in L.A. Uh, Joel Edgerton, an Aussie, you know, part of the Aussie invasion. <laughs> but ended up in LA. So it was like a really, really multicultural kind of, you know, diverse uh, international cast, which was cool. So anyway, so, you know, it was just one of those auditions you get, you know, agent calls, I have this audition for you and you go in and I think, you know, I felt, it felt right. It felt good. You know, uh, Matthias von Heingen, if I'm saying his name correctly, he was there. We kind of hit it off. We, we had a good chat. Um, didn't feel rushed. We tried it a couple of times. You leave going, Oh, that was good. That was that, that went well, as you often do. And, you know, often don't get the job. But I think it was maybe only one callback. By the time I was going in for the second callback, I had a really good feeling about it. And um, a couple of days later, get the call from the agent that, that I'd booked it and that it was going to be a bunch of days. And by that point, I don't think I'd worked on a, a movie of that size. You know, I'd done a lot of Canadian TV and some, you know, recurring stuff up here. But to be in a in a in a in a film a hollywood film of that size was really exciting for me i was super stoked and uh yeah and that and 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 the rest was history you know showed up on set and uh it was great did you know it was a prequel going into it or did you think it was just going to be a remake no definitely i i, I kind of got the concept of it being a prequel and um Maybe by the the first audition I didn't, but by but by the time I was getting closer, I really figured out what was happening here, and uh, yeah, which which I think which I think was smart. I think a re a remake, a true remake, would have been would have been a dangerous move, considering how iconic and amazing that first film was. I, I totally agree with you. I think yeah, there would be no way after sitting through a few a few of the sequels that came out previously, or soft reboots, remakes, and things like that where yeah. I would just be game for it. But as soon as it was coming through the magazines and on the internet at the time that this is actually a prequel, instantly yeah. you're watching the thing again to see, oh, where is it going to come in here? Yes. Uh, what, did, did you do the same thing? Did you watch the, the film again just to prep? Yeah, I did actually. I did actually. And I was like, what's, you know, how, how are they going to get into this world? And, uh, you know, the way the way it begins, the way it ends, starting to kind of link it up going like, oh, I see, this is where it, 
this is where we're ending. This is where this one's beginning. <laughs> okay, so you're at the stage now. You, you've started yeah. filming. Did you sort of film in sequence or uh, were you just bouncing around? That's a great question. As I re-enter my memory banks here, it was not fully in sequence and a lot of that had to do with location-based stuff. I remember we we shot at a quarry in uh, just north of Toronto where, where I live and... Uh, it was an old abandoned maybe gravel gravel pit basically like a giant quarry and they basically because it was april like i was saying it was kind of this time of year now that we were shooting it, you didn't know if it was going to be full winter or if it was going to be you know warm flowers coming up right it happened to be quite a warm spring and of course you know they're trying to make it look like full winter so they they sprayed the sides of this quarry like probably 10 trucks huge trucks with guys on the on the on the big you know lifts like spraying some weird mix of like you know paper and blue and water or whatever it was to cover the sides of these like a canyon they filled a canyon with fake snow basically as we were like sweltering under the heat trying to pretend it was cold and it was like because of things like that location stuff i think they had to jump ahead and grab some stuff uh that wasn't chronologically you know correct in the movie but um yeah so they they kind of bopped around a little bit in terms of timeline thinking when i'm coming to this if you're like the opening scene that you're filming is that scene the the big scene then you have to go back to play this nonchalant sort of i've done this before sort of thing guy what a yeah. weird way to go it is it is super weird and and that's definitely part of you know part of the biz right it's like there's a lot of weird things like that that when people are watching the movie it doesn't occur to them but but yeah, definitely. You know, I've I've had things where I've I've played my death scene before, you know, before my other stuff, right? And just like weird, weird things like that. But you, when you see it all together, you know, it's it's generally you don't even think about it. You just sort of enjoy the enjoy the whole thing. Of course, yeah, of course. So I want to talk about this scene, the scene that I had I hadn't watched it for quite a while, uh, and in for this podcast I watched it again. And of course, the only bit that I really remembered was that initial that initial scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the I also remembered the, the the initial time the thing sort of jumped out. Although in my mind, I saw it jump out, and of course you don't mm-hmm. actually see it fully. So yeah, mm-hmm. that was really well done. But yeah, your scene in the helicopter sticks out. It's a big moment. Uh, how do you prepare for something like that, which you know is going to be a key scene, and also it's a death scene? Is it a death scene? You know, how do you prepare? Yeah. Um... It's interesting. There was a lot of a lot of tech stuff involved in that in that scene, obviously, because uh, our film used both practical and special effects. Whereas you know the John Carpenter one was, I think, all practical stuff. Meaning for those for those fans out there who don't know, means like actual physical props and you know latex and fake blood and all that, as opposed to CGI. I think most people will will get that. But for that scene. I had I had a body cast made where you basically lie there and they cover you in, in latex oh, wow. and then slowly pull you out of it along with some chest hair. Um, they <laughs> they put me in a head cast. They took a mold of my head, basically, where you just have a little tube to breathe in, but they basically cover your head in latex. Oh, uh, not for not for the faint of heart or anybody with claustrophobia. Um, and then they they did this crazy 3D imaging thing where there's got to be a name for it, of course. I, I can't remember because it was the first time and it hasn't happened since. You basically stand in kind of like an airport, you know, those airport things are the kind of 
they check your body for they scan your body. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this this was similar. You're standing in this kind of conical shaped tube and it's so I mean it was so sci-fi. This thing kind of goes <laughs> spins around you a few times, gets some kind of 3D imaging of your body so that they can create the, the CGI imaging that they're going to use. So for me that scene was so much about the technical stuff that went into it for the acting stuff to prepare it was in many ways just like any other scene you know you've got your objective you're you're trying to get a guy out of there and in fact there was the guy across from me whose name i can't remember this awesome young norwegian actor he's across from me right and we think they've set it up well because you think he's infected he's sick right he's all pale and sweaty and he's shaking and he's doing a great job with his acting and his face just really tight stuff on his face so it really deflected a lot from me, right? I'm, I'm the guy who's helping. I'm the nice guy who's like, come on, man, I got you. We got this. So basically, I just had to play it. I couldn't play it, play the monster. The monster's its own character. I just had to play my half of the scene, my part of the scene, which was I'm going to get this guy out of here. I'm helping this poor guy who's really sick. So in essence, the acting side of it was pretty easy. Let's get out of here. You're not well. Come on, let's go. So when the monster comes out, that's, the acting part's over, right? You know, like, it's like, it's all, it's all monster. It's all monster at that point. The monster's the star of the show, but I think they, they did it in such a way that it was, it was kind of shocking, I think. And that's, and that's successful horror movie, right? It's where you can't, you don't know what's coming. You can't predict it. And then you get the jump scare, you get the, oh my God moment. And uh, yeah. And that, and that was that scene. That's why I remember I was in the cinema watching it and it's the one time that the, the audience in the cinema go, you know, that traditional whoop thing there, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming. With that scene, did you have an inkling, like in your character, that the thing was already in you, or was it just like a, there it comes? That's a great question. I think, I think for the sake of the movie, I think we had to play it without any inkling. I think I, I as an actor, had to play it with, with complete ignorance to the fact that the monster was in me. So that nothing was tipped off and that it didn't affect my performance. I can't remember the scenes before that necessarily, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we just played it as if I was I was fine, I was healthy, everything was good, and I, I was going to get this guy out of there. And I think that thinking that kind of thinking probably served the scene better. You know what I mean? So that there wasn't any like, oh, is that guy, is he okay? Does he have the thing? You know, like just fully, fully assume that that I'm not infected. Yeah, I mean the clues are there, but. They do that lovely bait and switch where, as you say, the other guy's the pasty one. And so you're all focused on him, ready to go, and everyone's worried for your character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. When you went to see this at the cinema, um, did you uh, did you go with a, a group? Was it a, a premiere uh, with the cast, or, or was it just like you on your own in the cinema with a bunch of fans going to watch this film? They had, they had a screening in Toronto for uh, cast... The, the 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 little cast that was left in in Canada, uh, crew, uh, and family and friends and whatever producers and stuff were were based here. I'm, I know they had one down there as well, but <clears throat> I went to the one here and I brought my my wife with me, which was kind of special seeing as she was such a fan of the of the John Carpenter wow one and and she actually got to come to set a couple times and we just had a a little baby by that point too and. Um, it was kind of neat, you know, just having having her there for a bit. But uh, yeah, it was just her and I, and uh, getting to watch it on the big screen was it's always it's always a thrill, you know. I mean, seeing yourself on TV is one thing, but when you get to see yourself on a giant screen, and it's 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 a whole other kind of thing. It's fantastic. 
Well, jetting a few years forward again, you're in Jigsaw, and mm-hmm. this one was a ridiculous success. Like there was a ton of money made for it. Was that a different uh, watching that for the first time with an audience and watching the thing? Yeah, actually, I, it was the first time I went down and did the whole kind of the whole red carpet thing, and I actually went down to LA for that for that premiere, and uh, I was cool. It was really cool. I don't know if it was different necessarily from you know if it's 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 still you know the magic of cinema walking into the theater a huge screen popcorn the whole bit but it felt a little different for me personally because i'd never done the red carpet thing before and that was a that was a weird trip like walking in and there's like fans with pictures of me they pulled off the internet they want me to sign and that whole thing i was like and i brought my i brought my sister with me who's and and her boyfriend uh and they're they're more they've done nothing but kind of filming TV. So they've done, they've done the red carpet shtick before. So they were kind of in my ear. They're like, no, go over there. Okay, go, no, 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 go over there. Those guys want to talk to you, go over there. I was like, oh, okay, great. I was like this, you know, small town Canadian kid in this weird world. <laughs> um, so that was, that was kind of exciting. And and then I really realized, I think I got a real sense of how, how huge this franchise is. It's a great role that you've got in it. It's a, it's a full role, uh, yeah. character development, you know, it's. Uh, I think that the whole pitch of it was getting a little tired there, and the way they sort of gently rebooted it was such a clever move. And of course, uh, the, the till receipts just show that yeah, that was a, a good idea to do it. Uh, have yeah. you got any plans going forward for horror, or are you sort of because I know you're doing really well in television now? Uh, yeah. Is it something that you want to revisit? I, I definitely would. I, I I had so much fun both those experiences. I mean, the thing I was definitely younger, a little greener. So maybe I was a bit more, I was a little more um, nervous on set, hanging out with these, you know, Hollywood types and stuff. But by, by the time I was doing um, uh, Jigsaw, I was, you know, I was in my element. Everything was good. I, I was confident and kind of relaxed. And I had a, I had a really, really great time. And just, just, the world of expertise that goes on in, in horror movies, there's all like the special effects world, that whole stuff is like mind blowing to me. Like it's the artistry, the artistry of that world itself that you don't really get to experience in, you know, drama or comedy generally, is just breathtaking. I mean, the the level of skill these guys have to make things look real, creating body parts and like how to, how to make a stunt look real so that the audience is believing it going, that's a fake leg or whatever, like, fully to invest themselves in it in a real way. There's so much expertise in that world. In terms of the acting stuff, it's like the motivations are clear. You know, you just got to live, right? You're just thinking like, you're not trying to like get the girl or meet the girl or deal with the heart. You know, it's like the the emotional journey of a horror movie, it's so far in my experience, is dead easy, right? You're scared. You're terrified and you want to get the hell out of there. It's like, okay, that's your acting motivation. Awesome. So... It was fun. It was really fun. There was a lot of screaming. There was a lot of a lot of laughs between takes. Ironically, you know, like you're actually laughing a lot. You're goofing a lot. You're having a laugh. You're talking. You're, you know, people actually. There was one time that was after every after every cut, I could hear laughing in the distance, and it was like, what the fuck? Why are they laughing? I'm cutting my own leg off here, and like do it again, again, like a bubble of laughter. What the hell? Eventually, one of the producers came up to me, like still like wiping tears out of his eyes. He's like. Oh, we haven't had humor in these movies before. Thank you so much. I'm like, I'm just acting here. I'm cutting off my own leg. But I guess my face, like just the way I am as an actor, I can't help but, you know, bring a little bit of humor to it. And uh, yeah, so definitely I would, I would make, I would make, 
doing another horror movie high on my list of of wishes again. And in fact, I'm 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 writing a script right now, a horror wow. script. Uh, more definitely more, more in the psychological vein, less gory perhaps, but definitely in that kind of like mental terror kind of thing. So yeah, we'll see. Ah, uh, I can't wait. I've got final question. A very selfish question. Just like a lot of horror fans, majority of horror fans, Jodie Foster, she plays a big part in sort of me growing up and um, just watching her in different roles. Now, I was watching Black Mirror Archangel and I'd sent off the initial, like, would you like to come on the show? And then I was like, is that is that you? So I watched it again and yes, indeed, it was yeah. you. Yeah. What is it like to be directed by Jodie Foster? It was really cool. Um, yeah, it was it was fantastic. And in, in, in fact, uh, funny story. So I had to I had to I don't often play the love interest in in anything, you know. Uh, just you know. And so in, <laughs> in, in and in this one, I'm the boyfriend. I'm like, oh shit! And I have to have my shirt off. And I'm not ripped. I'm a hairy. I'm like I'm not. You know I'm. <laughs> I am a normal coming, you know, normal built guy, but I had to, I had to send, I had to send a picture of my, I had to do a little, a slate with my shirt off to Jody Foster <laughs> in my, that was the weirdest thing. It's like, Hey Jody, this is me with my shirt off. Uh, Paul Bronstein, six foot one. Like that was so weird thinking that Jody Foster was going to look at my shirtless torso and decide if I could be in her show or not. But on set, she was like, so normal. Like, in, and I mean that in the best possible way, because obviously she's a, probably the biggest movie star I've kind of, you know, brushed shoulders with. I, you know, I follow her career. She's so good, incredible. And you go, here she is, and she's directing something, and she's, she, she's so normal. She's so smart. She's so nice. Um, she took time. I think being an actor herself, whenever directors have acted themselves, they often have a, have a, a facility with communicating to actors. Some directors barely talk to actors. It's all about the lighting. It's all about the shot. You know, hit your mark, stay your line. They don't give a shit. But Jody was like, she was communicating with us as the actors, gave us a chance to ask questions, gave us a chance to to feel good about what we were doing. And she was very, her, she was so nice and disarming and just so, just great. She was wonderful to work with and she's a really great director. I'm glad to hear it. Although I was excited for some, oh God, she's horrible story. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, those, those are the Hollywood stories we love, right? Like what an asshole. You couldn't look him in the eye and all that stuff. And I, I guess that does happen, but you know, sadly she was really nice. Not End today. of the story. <laughs> yeah. All right, Paul, thank you so much for being part of this. And before we go, is there anything you've currently got going on or just about to be released? Um, yeah, I'm actually just about to start shooting a new series called Reacher. It's, uh, it's based on the Jack Reacher thing. The, um, they made a movie with, or was it a series or a movie with Paul, what's Paul, with, uh, uh, Krasinski, you know, the guy from The Office. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I think they're doing, they're doing a new one, and, uh, I've got a, got a little recurring thing on that, and, uh, I start shooting that in a couple weeks. And, uh, yeah, other than that, just sort of, you know, keeping at it auditioning and doing a bit of writing and pitching some pitching some shows right now to some canadian networks up here and uh, uh and if that doesn't hit we'll we'll take it south and see if we can get them made down there fantastic all right yeah. thank you so much paul cheers for this thank you man all right buddy
Now, this movie does cop a lot of shit online. I think maybe it's because the majority of the time the effects are computer-generated rather than practical, which, I must admit, it really annoyed the hell out of me on my initial cinema watched. This was advertised as being all practical effects, just like the John Carpenter 1980s OG was before it. And as a massive fan of that film, it did put me at ease accepting that another group of people would be taking a stab and making this remake or prequel or reimagining or whatever they wanted to do with this movie. So I got to that theatre and when I came out, I was gutted. But when it did come out a while later, my wife bought it for me as a physical release, as a present, uh, because she's the best. Of course she would do that. But on those rewatches, I really, really loved it. And sure, that CG does not hold up. If you pause it on some of those effects, they do not hold up to any scrutiny at all. And it would be a higher rated film with me and for the majority of fans, I think, if there were practical effects. Well, if there were a lot more practical effects, should we say. Of course it would. Like That's a no-brainer. Of course it would rate a lot higher. I can only think that it might have been a time or a financial issue as to why they just didn't do that. But the movie itself and the performances in that movie, they are top shelf. It is a roller coaster ride. It is so much fun from beginning to end. There is also a bunch of scares on there. And I do remember at the cinema, people were jumping out of their skin it was one of those sort of Friday nights. It was a real good time. Just not so much for me at that point with my relationship to the film. And I've got to mention the lead. Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She is so bloody good in this film. I would say she did better this performance in 10 Cloverfield Lane, I think. She's outrageously good in that one as well. Uh, but she's also a weirdo highlight in Death Proof. If you haven't seen that one, that Tarantino uh, sort of inverted commas horror definitely see death proof we will be talking about that at some point uh, but yeah she's totally watchable and she's totally believable in everything that i've seen her in and she really did need to be because here it just takes a lot i mean it takes a lot for an audience to believe that a 25 year old could be the world's greatest and most world-renowned vertebrate paleontologist at 25 i wasn't even an expert on me at 25 but I bought into it. I did buy into her being that character. Here we go again, and I'm sure this will not be the last time. You've just heard the track Open Your Mouth. It is from the bog standard soundtrack that is Marco Beltrami's The Thing. Now you might think, what's wrong with that? It was suspenseful, it was full sounding, it was glossy, it does that required job that it is meant to do. I totally agree. 
But that's the problem with Beltrami's scores. They always just do the job required of them. They've got so little personality. I think they're just identical scores. Like this would sound just as good as if it was on Scream 4 or on Hellboy or The Shallows or any of the hundreds of movies that he's scored. They're interchangeable. They're just good for what they are. I think I better stop there. I think I'm just being mean. I don't know. It's just how I feel. I'm always in two minds whether to be honest about these things. But yeah, maybe I should have just said this wasn't for me. Overall though, the thing's a winner. Where can you find this movie? This is available for cheaps. You can buy this as a physical product everywhere now. But if you want to stream it, I couldn't find a free outlet. So you're going to have to rent or buy it. So you might as well if you've got a little bit of room. And you're going to potentially re-watch this thing. Maybe even pause it on those special effects. Just so you can see where the joins are like I did. Then, yeah, it's available for cheap. As for podcasts, Popcorn Digest did their podcast on the thing back in November 2016. But my favourite that I've heard is in August 2018. The podcast by Pod Cemetery. That is a cemetery like Pet Cemetery with an S. Well... They pitched both the 1982 John Carpenter take, along with this 2011 version, against each other, head-to-head, who's going to win, I wonder. Well, that's for you to listen and me to know. So, what was my number 10 film from 2011? Of course, it's The Thing. Welcome once again to the Starship USS Waller Prize. So with number 10 complete, I thought we should take a quick flight up here into the dark skies. And let's reflect on a couple of things. First off, three movies were unavailable to me this time around and I wanted to catch them before making this list. They were called Stillborn, Earthling and Schoolgirl Apocalypse. I couldn't find them anywhere, well, anywhere that I could afford them anyway. And also one that special effects artist and upcoming guest, Dan Martin, he recommended to me as perhaps the best film of 2011. Uh, So I did buy it and I did watch it, but I couldn't call it horror. I couldn't call it sci-fi, couldn't call it fantasy, although it did have elements of at least two of them. That was the Korean animation called King of Pigs. So I did buy it, I did watch it, I did like it, but it doesn't really find a place here. So all that stuff that I've just mentioned, that was frustrating. But you know what? Up here, amongst the stars, I do feel a bit more relaxed. I reckon we should head right over to a quadrant in this podcast where horror just doesn't quite fit. But these movies cannot be ignored. Welcome to Sci-Fi Corner with a touch of... A fantasy added in for good measure. And here we are. Welcome to the sixth edition of Sci-Fi Corner. So last month we visited 1996 
and the movie Star Trek First Contact went up against Independence Day. Uh, they battled for the top spot and I still can't choose between them now. It's the first and so far the only time that I've ever awarded anything joint top spot. And now we have a stonking 14 movies to chat about this time around. And 2011 had a lot of critically well-received films and many in this genre that did make a profit, but there was no breakthrough, there was no massive, massive release. And I think because of this, it was far easier for me to pick the best sci-fi or fantasy movie uh, that didn't belittle all those under it. In fact, from the 14 films, there are only three that I would not recommend to you. And the first of these is the bizarre and the inept love. It's a sci-fi exploration into loneliness and the human condition. Oddly, it's produced by the band Angel and Airways. And it was the directorial debut of William Eubank. And he directed The Signal and also more recently Underwater. And I watched this on YouTube for free and the transfer was pretty bad. So let's just say maybe that's the reason that I thought this was so god-awful. Next up to the plate, and when I say plate, I mean it's a plate with a big piece of poo on it. It's called In Time. In this one, Amanda Seyfried and Justin Timberlake, they run around trying to escape from a timekeeper who is played by Cillian Murphy in a place where literally time is money. Forget that though, because following In Time, we have Hugo, which was a massive mess of a story but it was also one of the most beautiful set designs and colour palettes that I've seen in a movie. Maybe not ever, but definitely in 2011. Okay, so that's them out of the way. Now, all these other movies, they're all above average. They're all worth your time. Maybe some of them just watch once, and a couple at the top you can re-watch and re-watch and just get so much out of them. But we're going to kick this lot off with a Bradley Cooper's vehicle called Limitless. And I think sort of a tagline here would be, imagine having a drug that will allow you to tap all your potential. Unfortunately, that pill ultimately is addictive and it can destroy your life just like any other drug. Or will it? And that's Limitless. Uh, yeah, uh, that's okay. Now, the next one isn't remembered very fondly at all by critics or by fans, but it does the job. Maybe not so much as a comedy, and that's a shame because it was actually pitched to be one, but I think it works better as just a buddy movie uh, between both the two leads and the alien Paul. Yeah, that, that, the film's called Paul. Now, Universal Studios, they spent $40 million on this, and it made $100 million back almost, so it was definitely a success. Maybe the issue with it, though, is that it plays out just like a kid's movie would play out. Nick Frost, Simon Pegg, they do a satisfactory job. Uh, it is a cool idea, and it's great to see them to doing what they do on the screen. But it seemed at points in this, both were phoning it in. Following this, we have the surprisingly unshit Real Steel. But this movie comes with way more baggage than any movie needs. The father-son dynamic and overall sentimental arc of this movie, it's just thrown together so pornly, it's completely transparent. And don't even ask what the point of Evangeline Lilly's character is, because 
it's pointless. In fact, I think I like this now purely because of all those fighting robots that look pretty cool. The CGI is really good. The practicals are really good. Uh, and I'm a bloke. I like to crush empty cans of beer on my face. Doesn't matter if there's stuff in it. I just crash it because I'm a man. And a little bit better than that one is... <laughs> I've written Harrow Poto. So, yeah, Harrow Poto and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Not being a big fan of this franchise or the books, I'm probably the wrong person to ask about this one. But it was a lot better than Part 1, at least. And the end battle was good fun. The biggest plus of this one was that the child actors, unlike the film Paul that I've just mentioned, they were not phoning this in. They still really wanted to be there, and I didn't expect to see that. They seemed to be having a ton of fun and really putting every single thing they could into it. I would have really expected Ron Weasley to be looking around at anything else but this film, just wanting to get out of there. But no, it still all worked. It's still good fun to watch. Uh, it's a good popcorn movie, so yeah, it's up there. A little bit better than that, though, is a film called The Adjustment Bureau. That is next, and I know this one is cheesy. I know it's cheesy as hell. And if you think about it too hard, then all the time travel stuff, uh, which the story actually hinges the whole thing on, it just falls apart pretty easily. But, a uh, big but here, I had a lot of fun watching this for the second time. When you're just not trying to analyse it and you're just running along with the film, the love story pulls me in and it pulls me through this disjointed time travel mess. Uh, and yeah, it's wonderfully heartwarming. It's a big blockbuster of a movie. Lots of stars, lots of chasing, lots of kissing. It's alright. And one that I watched pretty close to Adjustment Bureau, and I really couldn't choose between them, is a film called Source Code. Much like the Adjustment Bureau, uh, there is a stack of similar movies that came out around this period that deal with like the Groundhog Day scenario uh, that you have to go through to fix some sort of wrong. And it's not as clever as a film like The Endless, or as fun as a film like Palm Springs. I would definitely recommend those two over this. Actually, why not just go to the source? Why not watch Groundhog Day itself? A classic. I mean, this one's still good fun, but that's it. As I say, good popcorn, Friday night movie. You won't think much of it again after you first watch it. But yeah, source code, adjustment bureau, same sort of deal, the same sort of feel that you get from them. Uh, they're, they're just good. But next up, we've got that lens flare nutcase, J.J. Abrams. In 2011, he gave us Super 8. I've got nothing against your friends. I like your friends. Well, things have obviously changed for us. I have to help Charles finish his movie. Be good for you to spend some time with kids who don't run around with cameras and monster makeup. Uh, could you close your eyes, please? Yeah. And action! freighter derailed what the cargo was on that freighter we don't know we can't tell anyone i know 
I understand you have concerns about our cargo. Colonel, there isn't anything else that I should know, is there? I can assure you the answer is no. Now, this is a weird one. I should have totally loved this, and I must admit, the opening act is near perfect. Not quite the opening act of Scream Perfect, but it is near perfect. The big bad just isn't big enough when we get to it. And I guess you could say, well, come on, Paul, this is just a kid's film, and I should get over it, so, so I will. And now, the next four, they're all rather brilliant, definitely rewatchable, they definitely should be on everyone's list, and if not, in their actual collection. So at number four is Another Earth, starring Ethan from Lost. Now, as a lot of the best sci-fi movies do, the actual science fiction stuff just plays in the background to the drama that's unfolding in front of us. And this one has a rather magnificent Brit Marling playing the lead. This is a film that plays with grief and loss in an unsentimental way. It's quite refreshing and the ending of this is absolutely stunning. I saw this with a bunch of other people and if I remember this correctly, I was the only one that thought that about the ending. But honestly, on this recent rewatch, hit me the same way. Loved it. Into the top three now, and we have the absolutely depressing, the horrific, perfect sense. This is tightly directed by David McKenzie, and the two leads do everything you would want them to. This is a bleak-as-fuck love story that sets the drama against a pandemic. And this pandemic, it looks at COVID, and it laughs hysterically. It says, COVID, your weak skills cause minimal impact. Here we go. Check me out. I'm going to ruin the world. And once this illness attacks you, it gets you one sense at a time. Nobody on Earth is immune. From what we're aware of in the movie, nobody is immune. And although the ending is inevitable, it does still shock to the point that when this finished, I had to hold off from watching anything else for at least 24 hours. It's absolutely brutal. Okay, we are almost here. At number two, we have Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Our drug allows the brain to repair itself. We call it the cure. We're ready to move on to the next phase. This one. This is wrong, Will. This has the potential to change lives. Some things aren't meant to be changed. Does it work like we predicted? With one exception. The drug has radically boosted brain functioning. You mean increased intelligence? Rupert Wyatt's wonderful retelling of this classic monkey movie. It formed the first part of a new trilogy that ended up as much as a war movie as it did a work of science fiction. Now you can pick these up now for a quid in Poundlands all across the country, so truly there is no reason to not get involved if you haven't already. What gets me though is for some reason, even though the CGI is never ropey and the story and the execution of the movie itself is just close to incredible these movies are not remembered very fondly by movie obsessives i find that mad and this was my number one for this year for a long time 
But in the build-up to this, of course, I wanted to watch as many movies as I possibly can. And my number one pick, my number one pick, I saw for the first time probably just one month ago now. But now, to the number one sci-fi fantasy movie to come out in 2011, we have Lars von Trier's truly majestic Melancholia. Toast to the bride and the groom. You look glowing today. Never seen you look so happy. I'm thrilled about this wedding, and I know it's costing John a lot of money. It's not about the cost. I thought you really wanted this. But I do. What star is that? The red one. I don't know. What's going on, Justine? It's a planet that has been hiding behind the sun. Now it passes by us. I just have one thing to say. Enjoy it while it lasts. I myself hate marriages. Gabby, please. Is everyone in your family start grieving mad? I smile and I smile and smile. You're lying to all of us. I'm not really happy. This could have been a lot different. Yes, Michael, that could have been. Just forget it. Stop dreaming, Justine. What are we excited about? Tomorrow night. That's right. I'm afraid of that stupid planet. And it is not going to hit us. You promise? Life is only on Earth. And not for long. I don't think you know that at all. Sometimes I hate you so much. Upon its release, this movie never ever appealed to me. An art film with a running time of 135 minutes is not something that's going to pull me in without a real kicker of an angle. And that angle came very recently. Thankfully, I finally got Lars von Trier. In fact, thanks to this podcast that you're listening to right now, I watch both Antichrist and The House of Jack Built, and I love them both. I mean, I really love them both. All of a sudden, spending 135 minutes with Kirsten Dunst and a pretentious art flick that explored depression and the end of the world, it just seemed like the hottest ticket in my town. So, after speaking to many friends about it and after doing a couple of little posts online, I noticed that this is quite the underseen movie. I mean, it did all right at the box office, nothing to write home about maybe, but enough to keep Von Trier in the orbit of the big budget studios and actors being really keen to work with him. His artistic flair is pull enough still for the creme de la creme to seek him out and be associated with him. So thank goodness for that. And I'll give you a great for instance of that. When I saw Uma Thurman in The House That Jack Built, I almost shit myself. Melancholia is split into two acts, which is fine. It's a long movie, but I don't really even think it needed to be set up in that way. Even without it, the story flows so well. It's crystal clear when we're in a flashback or seeing the present. It's clear what themes are being explored. And it's clear that Von Trier is such a masterful filmmaker. Nobody guessed the amount of beans in the bottle. No, that's right. But I know. 678. Well, perhaps. But what does that prove? That I know things. And when I say we're alone, we're alone. 
life is only on earth and not for long. Kirsten Dunst, she would appear to be the versatile actor from the mid-90s as a child, right up until today. From my history watching her films, as far as I can see, the only thing that she really struggles with is comedy, and anyone that's seen Anchorman 2 or Dick may well agree with me. Maybe you don't. I'm not exactly the comedy guy, but for me, Jesus, they were hard work. But she is fantastic in drama, action, adventure, definitely horror, kids films, period pieces and pretty much anything that she turns her hand to. But I've never seen her better than in Melancholia. Her portrayal as a woman that has fallen into or, or rather embraced her depression is incredibly nuanced and somehow it's so heartbreaking and satisfyingly uplifting at the same time. Now as I mentioned this one is still underwatched. So, zero spoilers here, but I will say this. Everything that I've already mentioned could well put you off, as much as it could turn you on. With Melancholia, it's one of those films that I just want everyone to see. I think it's magical, I think it's beautiful, and I think it's definitely, 100%, the best sci-fi fantasy movie that came out in 2011. It's an absolute stunner. you just heard was the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra and that music is repeated several times within this film. You may recognise it because it's Wagner from his piece Tristan and Iseldi. Now there's not a lot that I know about Wagner. I'm more of a Grieg man myself but there is a great piece uh, online if you want to read about this. It's on a site called Opera Wire and it was published on the 3rd of August in 2017, and it was written by a fellow called David Salazar. And he writes so much more eloquently than I could, so I'm just going to read from his opening gambit on this site. Lars von Trier's Melancholia has but one major musical number throughout its two-hour running time, but that very piece gets repeated several times throughout the movie. The number in question... The glorious prelude to Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, one of the most revolutionary pieces of music in all of human history, and one noted for its ability to express the deep and painful yearning in all humanity. As I say, the article is really eye-opening, it's definitely worth a read, and whilst it might not be often that we read about opera, unless we're really into opera, I think it's always worth a 50p dilly-dally in a charity shop and buying up as many classical albums as you can because, you know, variety is a spice of life. So where can you find this? Well, let me tell you. Melancholia, this is currently streaming 
for free on Arrow TV. Elsewhere you can buy it VOD and if you want the physical item then you'll be able to find it as a DVD or on Blu-ray for less than a £10 note. As for podcasts, try the Conversations podcast. That was from November 2015. Also, Show Me The Meaning produced a really cool show uh, back in April 2020. And that's it. Number one sci-fi corner is, of course, Melancholia. Now, this one divides audiences. Its director clearly stated he was making a horror film. But the film takes its cues from Tarantino more than it does Carpenter. He even utilised the stunning acting talents of Tarantino regular Michael Parks as one of the leads. He of Kill Bill, Django Unchained, Death Proof and From Dust Till Dawn fame. Yeah, that Michael Parks. There is a wince-inducing switcheroo during this movie that is jarring as hell. It doesn't follow contemporary cinematic rules at all. But when has this director ever followed the rules? My number nine pick is the thrill ride movie with the mad skills filmmaking approach, Red State, directed by Kevin Smith. What is this, man? It's like Craigslist for people who want to get laid. I thought Craigslist was Craigslist for people who want to get laid. Right. She wants all three of us at the same time. This is what happens when parents block porn sites, man. They make socially backwards kids. Bet you boys want to get up to the devil's business, don't you? So get drinking, because I ain't drinking alone. I don't let no man near me unless he's got at least two beers in. Yes, ma'am. Guys, is, is, that, uh, is that you, Travis? Welcome, family. Good evening. Good evening, Grandpa. I hate the in America. Rampant fornication, adultery, abortion, flagrant sexuality. Everywhere. Will somebody please let me out of here? And it's up to the righteous to curb the spread of his disease. You might take a chill on that love. Grown up in here. Send the sinner straight to hell. Send the sinner straight to hell. God doesn't love you. Let's fear him. Fear God. Set in Middle America, a group of teens receive an online invitation for sex, though soon they encounter Christian fundamentalists with a much more sinister agenda. Now, pretty much myself and the guest that we're about to join, we speak about Red State in full. It does contain spoilers. We go into lots of details. So if you haven't seen it and it is of interest to you, definitely watch this first. And to talk about Red State, I contacted podcast regular Paul Chanter, a musician of many talents, he of Acid Rain and other fame. And when I say other fame, I don't mean other famous things. I mean the band Other. He's also an all-round pleasant fellow to spend a good 25 minutes with chatting about all things Red State. You want proof? 
Here it is. Talk about fearing God. I fear God. You better believe I fear God. How much you think a cross like that costs? You mean the dollars are common sense? Hello, Paul. Hello, Paul. There we go. That's easy. <laughs> Done. Simple. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, again. That's all right. This is great. That's... Second time. Oh, cool, yeah. I feel honoured. Mate, one more time and you are then regular. That's cool. Right. That's fine, That's That's fine with me. We come here tonight to talk about Red State. Yes. I had every single film available for you that I was going to talk about and you chose Red State. That's really interesting to me. Uh, because it's right. never going to be the one that I thought anyone would choose. Oh, okay. Proper chuffed about it. First of all, where did you come across this film? I knew it was coming. Um, I've always been a fan of Kevin Smith stuff um, from when I was working in a video shop and and Clerks came out. So Clerks, Morats, Chasing Amy, kind of skipped. Dogma's okay, kind of skipped Jersey Girl. Uh, you know, so when... So I've been a fan of his stuff anyway. And when I heard he was doing what he labeled a horror film, I was like, right, okay, that's going to be interesting because it's all knob gags and, and angst. You know, that's kind of what he had done up to that point, really. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, read the title Red State didn't mean anything to me, really. So I was like, right, okay. And so when I saw it, when I eventually saw it, I was kind of put on the back foot a bit because it was like, right, this is totally different okay. in a in a in a good way, but there's still a real kind of like a stick of rock. It's completely different to all the other sticks of rocks, but it still says Kevin Smith right through the middle. You know, you can kind of there's still that dialogue and you know, there's especially the intro. You know, the beginning bit with the three three guys is kind of. Yeah, it's very, very Kevin Smith, but yeah, very different for him then. I, th I felt that I was excited about this coming out, but I didn't really like the the comedy stuff from previous years. I loved the Clerks soundtrack. Right, but yeah. That's as far as it went. So I always had that poster in my mind. I always knew about him. And yeah. of course, Jay and Silent Bob, sort of iconic for anyone my age. But yeah, it's it was the sort of thing that I'm really into horror, and this is a comedy guy, so yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know what to expect, and I didn't like it on my first watch, but I freaking loved it on my second. <laughs> I don't know why that is. And um, reading a few reviews of it, 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 there was a real love hate with horror fans about this film. They're really split, and right. also. You don't really find it with Kevin Smith fans. Kevin Smith fans seem pretty on board with it, as far as I can see from these reviews. Um, yeah. What's your thoughts on Kevin Smith as a whole, as like this this director and his methods and his and his body of work already? You've mentioned a, a few of them, but what really makes you like this guy? I think I think the main thing that attracted me to his work was like I was a big reader of Empire back in the day and they were kind of like touting him to be the next big guy you know the next <laughs> big guy um the next not the next Tarantino because that's a horrendous thing for any to be anybody to be labeled with but um just the the next voice the new voice you know so it just it it just kind of hit me maybe it's because I worked in a video shop the other thing is he he's pretty much the same age as me 
so it's just that, yeah, this guy did it. You know, he just maxed out his credit card, made a film in the shop that he worked in while it was closed at night. You know, it's that's fucking nice. crazy. But he, but he did it. And that's the thing. It's like, yeah. And then there's that kind of thing. Well, maybe I could do it. You know, and I had, that's when I started, that's when I first started screenwriting in inverted commas, I guess. But his body of work, I saw it change from like the kind of, if you want to call it like juvenile stuff of clerks and more rats and then chasing Amy, which had a bit more to say, but some people said it was a bit heavy handed. Um, Dogma, which is when he first kind of kicked off with the religious aspect of stuff. But I think some people, why horror fans are kind of split with this is because I could see why it could be labeled a horror film. It depends what you're what your idea of a horror film is, I think. And what's cool about what you do on this podcast is that it's not just, I talk about films where there's a guy hacking people up for 90 minutes and then there's a last girl who kills him, but he's not dead. He comes back because there's another eight films afterwards. You know, it's not, it's not all that, you know, like people say Science Lambs is a horror film. People say Jaws is a horror film and, and it's all arguable. Are they thrillers or is it an action adventure film you know so i could see why some horror fans might go oh right okay let's watch red state that's not really a horror film that's something else well you could argue at the beginning of this when you've got the the dialogue of all the the sexual stuff going on and all the lad bravado that that very identical thing happens in like hostel uh, and films like that which are yeah percent horror films so yeah you can't ha- hold that against it in any way or I'll yeah. slap you. You're not allowed. <laughs> well, it definitely, if you went into that, if you go into Red State completely blind, not knowing, you know, you know, you don't know anything about it. When those three kids meet up with that woman and she drugs them, that you're like, this is going to go south really, really fast, which it does, but it doesn't go south in the way that you, you may imagine that it's going to because it almost goes south in a, in a weird, in a way that's even more terrifying because it's far more plausible than any kind of Jason Voorhees kind of thing, you know? Yeah, it feels it... real. It, it feels like all of a sudden you've dropped out of one style of film into another. It's pretty seamless. It doesn't feel like jarring or anything like that because you no. understand how they've got there. But at the same time, it is a jolt if you think you're going in seeing one thing and then you're then you're in into this whole other piece. Yeah, it's not quite from dusk till dawn in the way it changes gears, but it is, you know, because I did think, well, it's like two films, isn't it? Because it starts out one way, but then it's more like three or four films. It's it goes from this kind of American Pie kind of lads meeting up, possibly a horror film now, and then then you're into i don't know what you and then it's a siege story and then and then it yes. becomes like is this a is this a biblical thing now <laughs> it's like what the fuck is going on it That's hits so on, many different things on that last watch i got to that end part loving the film just thinking yeah this is a bit of me and then the <laughs> the wailing happens those horns come on and i've yeah. got tingles i'm so excited i've forgotten how it ends from my first watch and I'm just like, oh my word, I'm in. What the hell is, are we in here? You know, I was so excited about it. Yeah. And I just want to skip a, um, a little bit and go to the ending with you. So 
I was watching uh, a little bit of extra stuff online and it wasn't the actual ending that Kevin Smith had planned. No. I would have loved that ending, as it would he. He said he couldn't do it because of money. I take it you yeah. already know all about this. How do you feel about about the actual ending and the potential ending? Are you talking about the the angel mm-hmm. coming down? Yeah, the, and the just, four horsemen uh, of the apocalypse. Yeah, and just wiping everybody out and and then just going shh and disappearing. Amazing. Yeah, that there is something about that that I would I would love to see it, but at the same time, I I think what what it is already is is great. But like I said, where you kind of like, what is going on now? If that ending came in, it would just. I think it was just too much. I think people would be people wouldn't be able to go with it. I think it's just it's just so bizarre. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense in a way, but tonally what you've just been through with the preaching and then the siege and all that. And then for that to happen, it's, it'd be all of a sudden something that's quite real. And you know, that you, you, I mean, you've seen it on the news. It's that real Um, to then suddenly go into this fantasy uh, sort of uh, end of the world judgment day kind of what the hell. And it would, and it would have cost a fortune to do that as well. So and and he's always about the money. He's always good with the money. So I feel yeah. like he wrote that ending just for shits and giggles to like put a Kevin Smith ending onto to what was quite a serious and heavily themed film. But yeah, at the same time, I love that shits and giggles element of the whole thing. Yeah, and yeah. I don't know whether it would be worth the amount of money. He said he said it would would have been instead of a four million film, a thirty five million film. So. You can see the big difference there. Yeah, and he's he's he is one filmmaker who is extraordinarily budget conscious and writes very much within uh, what what he considers to be reasonable. You, you you'd never hear. I don't think you'd ever hear about Kevin Smith just pissing away a, a multi million dollar budget because sure. it's just not his style. You know, I don't think it ever has been because his first film was made by maxing out his own credit card so that's that's how his mentality started so i think he's always going to be on that kind of wavelength in terms of how tight he is with the purse strings and stuff you know well even keeping his budget down for this one on its initial release it didn't make its money back until he'd toured around with it and um, yeah. sorted out video deals and things like that yeah um, uh, and one of the things i find interesting is at this point of time in horror history in cinema history it seems to me like this might have resonated uh with an audience that was maybe hungry for these sort of films and yet it didn't happen do you, do you feel anything of the reason why it didn't connect with people from 2011 um i think it is partly because he's not known as that guy i think it's quite telling that the main quote on the front of the blu-ray or the main quote on the poster is from tarantino hundred percent because it's like it's like we need people to know that this is kevin smith being doing something different and it is it is good honest you know because people are like well that's the funny guy that's the guy that's the jay and silent bob guy it's all weed and and knobs and you know that kind of stuff uh we're not going to take him seriously he says he's doing a horror film well that's not going to be very scary is it you know it's weird that he then went on to do tusk which 
is almost like the, if he'd done that first, people would probably have taken Red State a bit more seriously. Whereas Tusk is the horror film is to me is more of a horror film, but is take it way less seriously than Red State. I've not seen it. Um, would you recommend Tusk? Tusk is <laughs> Tusk is a Tusk is a film that I recommend to people, so I can then get a message from them about two hours after they've told me they're going to start watching it that says, "What the fuck was that?" <laughs> It's like Tusk and The Greasy Strangler are, are two films that I Wow. It's in that bag. <laughs> yeah. Totally, yeah. Totally. Oh, wow. Now now I'm on board. So I guess I, I'm guessing by that you've totally seen The Greasy Strangler. Oh right? yeah, it's it's commonplace once a year in my household. Yeah, I, I I blew the rest of the band away by suggesting one night, "Oh look, Greasy Strangler's there. Why don't we watch that?" And they're all like, "What is it?" That was it. I was like, just watch it. <laughs> um, we all need to know. I think me and you are on the same boat. I think we both are quite big fans of this film. Uh, I would like to know one thing, and I haven't previously asked you to do this. You need to pair this up with another film. So off the top of your head, for a double bill, what is going to go with Red State? Wow. I don't know. I don't know why, but I just went to a quote that quite often goes through my head when I watch Red State. I went to see Walk the Line, you know, the Johnny Cash thing yeah. when it came out. I went with a mate of mine who's like a big fan of Johnny Cash. And there's a bit in that where uh Johnny Cash's wife, her her father starts arguing, Johnny Cash turns up at the house and he runs in and gets a gun. And my mate leant over to me and he just whispered in my ear nothing scarier than Christians with guns. And like, that just leads straight into Red State. But I mean, I don't know, I don't know what you would pair with Red State. I, that's like, kind of, you drop that on me without, you know. You've done it. Walk the line. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds, that, that would really throw people. Walk the line and Red State. Watch those together. That's uh, done. <laughs> that's brilliant. Okay. Uh, actual real final question. Would you rate this film? What would you say to fans out there that are wanting to dip into some some Kevin Smith? Where would you say A? Would you rate this one or B? Where would you actually start with Kevin Smith? Uh, I think um, to start with Kevin Smith, I think you'd need to kind of get the idea of what this what he is and what his general oeuvre is, and um, it is Jay and Silent Bob. So it would be you start with Clerks, Clerks, Morats, Chasing Amy. Do those three. And then start to look at stuff like, because, you know, Zach and Miriam make a porno, I think is a great film, but it's not, you know, it's just ridiculous. But Red State, I think you'd have to watch Tusk as well, because it's just out there. But in terms of his filmography, I think it is one of his better films, because by his own admission, he's not a great, his films never look great, is something he's always said. His films don't, his, you know, he said, my films are two people talking in a room, they don't have to be flashy. But with Red State, his cinematographer really did kind of pull it out the bag and there are some interesting things in it, high shutter speeds and stuff like that that kind of give that kinetic energetic feel to shots and stuff so it's very different for kevin smith but at the same time it still feels very much like a kevin smith film and you know if you know anything about like the whole waco thing and all that it, it it's all very reminiscent of that and stuff like that is brought up in in the film as well which is quite cool that about how things like that are managed and it has one of the best Kevin Smith lines ever from John Goodman when he says, 
uh, sir, you said this was just going to be a simple in and out. And he goes, well, simple, just shit itself, which I think is for some reason that line just gets me every time. I think it's brilliant. I'm going to have to agree with you here that cinematography and the editing along the before, during and after the siege is stunning. It's stunning. There is parts of that that remind me of um, the beginning of Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, it's a shutter speed. That that is incredible the way you Mm. are on the edge of your seat. You don't know who's going to live, who's not going to live. It's a stunning piece of work. And all this from the guy that does the Star Wars quotes in his film, you know, this is mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. And I think the fact that he tapped into this thing that at the time as well, the whole Westboro Baptist Church thing was kind of yeah. known about, which is this is v- loosely based around uh, in the film. It's what is it? The five five points Trinity Church. That's it. Yeah. Is what called, um, which is loosely based on the whole Fred Phelps Westboro Baptist Church thing, who he invited to screenings. Kevin Smith invited them to screenings, which because um, he said, you know, I'd like to know what you think. But they just protested. But I think. There's, if you look for it, there's some awesome pictures of Kevin Smith and the whole viewer skew team protesting back with their own signs that say stuff like um, four hates straights. And another one, my favorite one was uh, just a big sign that just said dick tastes yummy, which it was just, <laughs> it, was, it was just to wind them up completely. But um yeah, so I think it's you know there, there's there's a lot of serious stuff in in serious themes in the film. There's also some stuff that's really hard to look at in the film. The guy wrapped in uh, cling film. Uh, it's it, it's a horrific image, and there is a lot of stuff in it that's uh, that is not just imagery, just the situation and the situation as a whole. The fact that you do have people like the Westboro Baptist Church if they were to suddenly for some reason arm themselves, it would just, Oh, and then you end up with the whole Waco thing, which is everybody saw that, you know? And so there were some very real horrific things in it, which I guess kind of push it into the horror film thing. But in terms of a Kevin Smith film, it's, it's, it's different for him, but it's different in a good way. Definitely. It's him branching out and, and it worked for a change, which is, it doesn't with some people when they try something new, kind of fall flat on their face but i think he succeeded with this one i would recommend it to anyone that's on the fence about watching it um yeah. i know i was on the fence coming back to it and i'm so glad i did um so yeah paul thank you very cool. much that's okay thanks man Father
Now, there isn't a released soundtrack to this one that I could find at all, but there are a few songs played throughout the film, and they are listed on the end credits. And what's more, Michael Parks, who plays Pastor Aben Cooper in the movie, he is listed with a few of those musical credits himself on this film, and he played the track that you just heard called Father Along. Looking on his wiki page, he has released several albums before his death in 2017, and they were released between 1969 and this one in 2011 was his last. So this track appeared on an album called Red State Sessions, and which again, good luck finding a copy. I couldn't find it anywhere. Kevin Smith himself wrote on his Instagram page upon hearing about the death of Michael Parks, he, well, he wrote the following. Michael was, and will likely forever remain, the best actor I've ever known. I wrote both Red State and Tusk for Parks. I loved his acting so much. And he's also been quoted as saying that he was, hands down, the most incredible thespian I've ever had the pleasure to watch perform, and Parks brought out the absolute best in me every time he got near my set. There you have it, that's Red State. And where can you find this movie? Well, in the UK, you can watch it for free on something called Plex. Papa, Lima, Echo, X-Ray, Plex, whatever the fuck that is. I just don't know. Everywhere else, you have to buy it on VOD. I bought my copy via Music Magpie and it cost me 48p. The Blu-ray is still cheap at under a tenner. Uh, and that's a few options. I've just given you them. I've laid them out for you. Take your pick. Uh, as for podcasts, the podcast called Film Stories, that splurges, splodges, joins up Red State with Casino. Bizarre of them to do so, I think, but they do. Uh, on their podcast from August 2020, they go into detail on the behind-the-scenes stuff in the film, and it's really, truly interesting. It's really in-depth, and it's really worth your time. And that's it, my number nine pick. That is Red State. This film begins with a symbol, a symbol that we are given no context to place it with. It's just there, just there on the screen. After this, what unfolds is a hyper-tragic kitchen sink drama which occasionally is juxtaposed with the flip side of domestic life showing us that every now and again there is a love inside to being in a relationship and having a partner. But if you do take away the rest of the movie for me, the fact the protagonist here, Jay, played rather splendidly by Neil Maskell, is also a hitman, then the movie unfolds to be a genuinely creepy as hell folk horror. Today, I get it. I understand why it took me three watches to even like this movie. All that family drama, all the fighting, that pressure cooker atmosphere, the sideways glances, it all felt too real for me. I'm sure it does for anyone that was raised in a broken home with a fucked up adult at the head of the table. But there's that little something about this film that kept me coming back. I knew there was something breathtaking to this movie. The more I persevered with it, the more I would get out of it. And you see, this director is one of my favourites. I trust him. He just had to give me a bit of time on this one to come around. So once again, the reason why this is so hard to watch was because it felt so absolutely real to me. 
The director is Ben Wheatley, and the movie in question, sitting at my number eight position, is Kill List. Of course it is. As mentioned already, this film just gets better with every viewing. There is an air of unease that stems from the family drama that permeates into all other aspects of the movie. Ben Wheatley is so on it as a director, never revealing too much, always just enough. Also, there's an actor in this that just freaked me the fuck out whenever I saw her face on the screen, especially that first time. Emma Fryer is the culprit. I recognised her from somewhere, I just had no idea where it was. I looked at her filmography and there was just no joy. And then I googled her and I found out she's a comedian that I've just seen on TV, just seen all over the place. It just didn't gel from the off. But I tell you, there was something up the moment that I saw her on screen. She is delightfully devilish in this. And as for the ending, that is just something else. If you haven't already seen Kill List, don't worry, I'm not going to spoil any of it. As usual, this is a list show. I'm not going to go into detail unless I've got a guest with me. And I still won't go into detail if that guest is Daniel. Let's face it. But what I will say is even though the clues are all there, there is no way that you see it coming. Unless, of course, you've already had it spoiled for you and you know what's coming is coming. Now, I am rather lucky to be the proud owner of a limited to 1,000 copies copy of this soundtrack record. The composer is the rather special John Williams. He also crafted the scores of a field in England. He did Raw and Possessor. Uh, the vinyl is great. Side One has just one song on it, a 22-minute track called Kill List. Uh, and the flip side is an etching. It's quite something. The packaging is just beautiful.
Anyway, the whistling in this, if that doesn't get you, then these deep woodwind sounds and those electronic rumbles, they will. This is as creepy as anything I've heard this whole millennium. It's never wistful, it's never light, it just appears to be fixed on wanting to make you feel sick. And at 22 minutes long, it doesn't outstay its welcome either. I highly recommend this. I think it's on YouTube. I'm pretty sure you cannot listen to it on Spotify. Although I know a field in England on Spotify. If you just want to get a taste of Jim Williams. And this is an odd one for me because I didn't even bother looking where you can find this. Because if you go to any Poundland in the country, this is for our UK listeners of course. If you go to any Poundland, you can find this. They must have printed way, way, way too many copies of this up because it's everywhere. Every Poundland that I've been to in the country has this in it. As for podcasts, Kill List does appear to be really popular with critics and podcasters and for good reason. So I have a couple of great recommendations for you, but please, if you haven't seen it yet, make sure you watch the film first because these both spoil the hell out of it. So Mike Munzer, of course, he pairs Kill List with Sightseers and A Field in England, and that's on his podcast called Evolution of Horror. You would already know it because it's bloody massive. That was released back in September 2018, and a month later, another one aired, and that was called How to Survive. And there you go, that's it. Both really good podcasts to listen to, and you will end up with a real nice overview of the film. So, just as a final note here, I do think that you'll find there's no real trend with horror in 2011, in much the same way that we discovered when we tackled 2010. And it just means to me that horror at this point was a real varied place to set up camping. And you will see this going forward, no doubt, in my list. Kill List was my number eight pick. And we stay on the British Isles, sort of at least, for my number seven. What could it be? Hello, this is Paul. I'm just editing this thing together and realised I didn't do an ending bit for part one again. If you're listening to this on the day it comes out, then tomorrow part two will arrive. If you're listening to it in the future, then just click on to the next episode. Take care out there.